Well, hello again. Hello again. All right. So, uh, if you got nothing else, let's get rolling here. Yeah, let's get rolling. More prepared. So, you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Burt Reynolds, of all people, on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, uh, good evening, and welcome to the first episode of the 10th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Here's such a guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my long-suffering co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird and wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight, like him or not, and honestly, by most accounts, he could be, at least in his later years, something of an asshole. Burt Reynolds left a formative decade in cowboy films and television to become one of the biggest box office draws and objects of female lust of the 1970s. With nearly an unbroken string of box office smashes, he showed up in everything from Woody Allen and Mel Brooks comedies to sports melodrama, from movies built entirely around his down-home good old boy charm, which wasn't entirely true, by the way, we'll get to that, uh, White Lightning Gators, Smokey and the Bandit, to weird stretch things like the musical Long Last Love or Robert Aldrich's odd neo-noir hustle, with art house fave Catherine Deneuve, no less. Kicking off the 80s still in full swing, he kept on with Smokey and the Bandit and the Cannibal Run films, and similar fare like Stroker Race, Hooper, and the film adaptation of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas with Dolly Parton, before making yet another career switch into a sort of grumpy old man, dirty Harry Paul Cursey Light in films like Sharky's Machine, Stick, Heat, Malone, and Physical Evidence, finally settling onto sporadic television cameos thereafter. And we didn't even mention his naked centerfold and his very public affair with aging swing shanties come talk show host, Dinah Shore. Join us tonight as we discuss the true force of nature who wiped a grand swath across the cinematic landscape of two whole decades, the one, the only, Burt Reynolds. So, thanks for joining us tonight. Again, I am Doc Savage, and with me is the maven of sleeves, the virago of vituperativeness, Mr. Lewis Paul. Lewis, how you doing? I missed that. Yes, yes, I'm doing I'm doing okay. Uh, we're, we're hanging in there. Should you all be banned from leaving your houses, just look forward to hearing our voices for the rest of the next six months. Exactly right. <laughs> It's like, we'll keep you going. Is that show on again, man? I need, I need to keep something going, man. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're going to add extra shows if this happens. No That's one is label. Amazon is going to make a fucking killing. Guys in hazmat suits are going to be delivering your shit. But, uh, hey, they're not, they weren't stupid. They set themselves up, right? That's true. Um, they got their own thing. They got the drones coming out. They're, they're all set. Oh, okay, Burt Reynolds. Yes, um, as you said in your in your intro, you know, love him or hate him, I I couldn't help it. I I I found a really likable guy yeah. um, in the movies. Yeah, in the movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I found him to be a really likable guy. Uh, I backtracked so. a little bit. Like I, uh, I saw things like Dan August uh, and some of his early TV work um, later on because I was curious and to, you know. They would rerun on the early things like TBS and TNT before it became what it is now. Those shows used to have some cool, cool uh, older TV programs. Uh, 
unedited and without 40 minutes of commercials. So I got to catch up uh, backhanded on that stuff. He did do odd things. He, he did do, from what I could tell, best little whorehouse in Texas. He really wanted to do that. The end, semi-tough, the longest yard, deliverance. I mean, there, there were a lot of things he was very tough in. He had a lot of issues. He... He did this movie with Clint Eastwood. They were both huge box office drawers in the late seventies, early eighties, and no one, no one will say otherwise. Uh, it's, it's definitely a, a truism. And they, they got teamed in a, in a, in a should have been better movie called City Heat, a period piece too, no doubt. Which is like, yeah, it would have been better for contemporary, but in any case, and Bert got hurt for real on the set. He liked do you know he hung out with stunt guys. He used a lot of stunt guys in his his films. He even gave them featured speaking parts, major, you know, things. Uh, Dar Robinson, I think, is one of the guys. But Burke seriously hurt in this. He was on Perkadan, and then it escalated to, you know, super super. He was always in pain. At some point, they had to shut down production, and then when they picked it up again, you could see an obviously leaner, thinner more fatigued-looking Bert in some portions of City Heat. He was kind of off the grid for about two years, and when you're at the, you're at the major thing in Hollywood, you know, that's like boom, you know. Mm-hmm. And when he was off the grid there, that's around the time, the, you know, the Canon pictures of Van Damme started doing very well, and, all, you know, uh, the Chuck Norris's. And you could actually think about this without thinking too hard, some of you <laughs> folks. This is why the Canon Movie stars rose to ascendancy. You know, these guys were off the grids in the 80s and uh, a little bit, and that's all you needed for all of a sudden these uh, lower-budget pictures from these mid-sized studios. Suddenly, you got action stars you never thought. And then when Burt came back, he tried – he worked hard. He did uh, quite a few films in a small amount of time, uh, some of them good, some of them okay, some of them mediocre. He tried doing things like the Cannonball Run series, which sounds like a joke, but the first one's a lot of fun. It's it's like it is. drinking game movie, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know, uh, wow, you could never do that today. I, I I saw something recently that thinking of rebooting that. Well, how can you when the budget would be astronomical, yeah. you know? Um, but it's it's you can't even think about that, folks. We had everybody in those days, <laughs> even D. Martin, Sammy Davis, Jackie Chan. What did you say? Yes, Jackie Chan. Brent Reynolds, uh, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> it was wild. Uh, it's sporadically funny, both of those pictures. You know, uh, the second one, not so much, but I think Roger Moore was more featured in that because he was the Bond of the time. So Bert's thing started to, his star started to dim more further, uh, more more the, the rise of video. Uh, he started to do a lot of pictures that were, Kind of questionable, but you know he needed to keep working. But he was still in pain. I guess he was still seeing you know physicians for his issues. Uh, he did two short-lived TV series, which I, I dimly remember, but I uh, I think they were okay. Um, oddly enough, uh, best supporting actor he won. It was sort of like the the Eddie Murphy. Who's the other fellow uh, this year? Eddie Murphy, and there was someone else. Um, uh, Taron Egerton for Rocketman. Both those guys won a lot of awards. When it came time for the Academy Awards, they weren't even nominated. Now, Burt picked up a lot of wins for Boogie Nights, 1997. 
playing a role he said he didn't like. Playing being in a film, he said he didn't like the director, and he really wasn't keen on promoting it, the film. But damn, he was terrific in it. You know, mm-hmm. he was really good in it. I don't know what's your problem, man. It's like the best thing you've been handed in a long, long time. Uh, but going back, because that's kind of the overview of you know how his career trajectory. This went. is yeah, this is an overview. We're going to go into the films, but we're going to go into the films right now, folks, and then little things like this will come up. Yeah, I'm no, sorry. You, go ahead. No, not at all. Because I was going to give him a sort of overview too. Because seriously, the guy, at least in the past, was such a big deal. Older women really had a thing for him, like the different Tom Jones and Elvis before him. Maybe it was mm-hmm. the sense of humor. Maybe it was his hairy chest. I don't know. But it went as far as actually making the career of a guy named Sasha Gabor, who was actually building his first porn films as our Burst Reynolds lookalike. He did actually look a lot like him and even pulled off some of his easygoing film mannerisms. He just couldn't speak English too well, so he'd like kind of mumble and burble a line while raising his eyebrows, smirking like Bert. And he drove around in a car that actually had bandit license plates. <laughs> It was the same oh, I remember that guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had a big, big mustache, uh-huh. thick mustache. Kind of balding, yep. And he actually came off, you would believe he was Bert, except that he couldn't really speak English well. <laughs> yeah, I remember that guy's movies, because he used to pair him up with uh, her suit women a lot. In those <laughs> well, those are the days. Yeah, he was in a lot of good movies, let's put that one. Uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, so I saw him often. Uh, one of his secret weapons was making friends, talking about Bert, the real Bert, who later became somewhat influential or at least stuck around to helm or join him in a large number of his most popular films, which he kind of hinted at. The most important one being Hal Needham. Needham started his career as a Hollywood stunt double and was one of the go-to guys domestically in the 60s, especially for Westerns. He, One of the guys who he was a regular double for was, wait for it, Burt Reynolds. Through this, they became buddies to the point where Hal actually wound up living in Reynolds' guest house for 12 years. <laughs> so that's how close they were. But it wasn't his stunt career that was important here because along the way, he had moved from being stunt double to stunt coordinator to second unit director when it came to action Mm -hmm. and car chases. And during that time, Needham wrote the screenplay that would become Smokey and the Bandit. And all of a sudden, his housemate and pal Reynolds swung it so he'd get a shot at directing that film. And the rest was history for both of them. They'd pair for several similar films in the late 70s and early 80s, which included a lot of Burt's most famous films, Hooper, The Cannibal Run, Stroker Race, two of which wound up going into one or more sequels, also helmed by Needham and starring Reynolds. So... A lot of good stuff there. Hal's most notable films, for those who are interested, he did The Longest Yard with Burt, Smokey and the Bandit with Burt, Cooper with Burt, The Villain, which was horrible. We talked about that in the... Oh, I, th- I think The Longest Yard was Aldrich, actually. But I think he worked second unit on it. Yeah, that was it. He worked the car chases on it. Uh, so it was Aldrich, but Hal did work on that film. The Villain, which was terrible. We talked about that during our Schwarzenegger show. Smokey and the yeah. Bandit 2, of course. The Cannibal Run. Cannibal Run 2. Megaforce. Those of you who remember that crazy, cheap thing. Stroker Ace, of course. We mentioned that. And Body Slam, the terrible wrestling movie with, uh, I think, Parker Stevenson and Hulk Hogan and Zeus and all those <laughs> crappy wrestlers. Randy Savage, I think, was in it. A uh, very campy film. Very 80s. And then that was basically he packed it in. But still, that's a pretty good run, most of which was with Burt. So you got to say that for Burt, too. He definitely took care of his buddies. Uh, he definitely did not turn his backs on anybody that got along with him that he worked with. And how being the most prominent example, but this happened with a lot of guys. You'll see that as we go. He had done a bunch of TV series, including Gunsmoke, The Twilight Zone, Perry Mason. He's got bit parts. Yeah, like uh, Gunsmoke. Yeah, Gunsmoke. He was on for three years. Like, who knew? Mm-hmm. Uh, as as a second feature uh, actor, which was really interesting to me. Yep, uh, he was on stuff as early as 1960 with Alfred Hitchcock's Sense, Michael Shane, The Naked City. You know, just bit parts for a lot of it. Route 66, Perry Mason, I mentioned. He was on Flipper, you know, <laughs> weird stuff like that. And then 
all of a sudden. Well, uh, and also, since we're talking TV, Hawk 1966 was pretty decent, kind of a gritty cop show. And then Dan August, 7071, a year and a half, two years. That And that's also either reruns or you could probably get the DVDs. Those are pretty decent shows. Um, I was going to ask you about Dan August because I had not seen it. Yeah, it's one of those Quinn Martin productions, if anybody's familiar at all, watch the FBI with Ephraim Zimbalist. Actually, hit and miss show, or The Invaders with Roy Thinnis, which was way of, you know, it's a cult. I don't know why it's not been a cult thing. It was briefly, and then boom. Um, Quinn Martin production. Quinn Martin was this TV guy who, whenever a show came on that he produced, right after the title, be a Quinn Martin production. Do we really need the voiceover? <laughs> uh, Dan August was one of those pretty good, you know, pretty good. Norman Fell, who actually a little later on became known as a go-to guy for this, the Rat Pack, you know, he would appear in a lot of those things, was like uh, in that feature in that. It was pretty good. It's a little gritty. You know, these early cop shows are pretty good. Anything 65 to 72, you know, because the directors here went up working in feature films. So they, you know, they had a little leeway. They got a little gritty. Uh, Reynolds was pretty decent in those. And then he was also in General Ben and Love American stuff. <laughs> but, uh, well, everybody was in Love American yeah, stuff. I know. But it's still funny to see if somebody's credits are like, really? Love American stuff? <laughs> those of you who remember that show will know why I'm laughing. So then he got his big break, and it was at, I guess, sort of the same idea as what happened to Clint Eastwood, where Sergio Leone had scooped him up for The Man With No Name and did that wonderful trilogy of films with him. Well, uh, not quite as good on Burt's part, but acceptable. Some people will mock it, but it was acceptable. Sergio Carbucci, who delivered such classics of the peplos, spaghetti western and comedy as Samson vs. the Vampires, Django, The Hellbenders, Compañeros, The Great Silence, Super Fuzz, which HBO veterans may remember as the Bud Spencer Terrence Hill comedy, The Super Cops, here delivers a surprisingly early decent break for TV bit player and grunt Burt Reynolds, starring as Navajo Joe, an eventual American Indian who takes on the Bandits and Massacre Strap and then becomes sort of a bounty hunter. So at first it's straightforward. His revenge gets a bit tangential when it helps a carriage full of hookers who court witness some town officials working in tandem with the Bandits to pull a great train robbery and split the profits. And then he demands a buck ahead from every person in town for every band that he lost. So extortionate capitalism is the best revenge. Uh, that's the message here. In the end, Joe gets his revenge on the bandit chief, but is in pretty bad shape. He keeps his word and sends the recovered money back to town, which is all they seem to care about, right? Screw this guy. Only the madam from the whorehouse gives enough of a damn to send his horse back to wherever he is on the desert, presumably dying. So it's kind of a mixed film. I don't necessarily like what it's saying, even though it's kind of true. Bert is not the greatest and most emotive performer in this role. But, yeah, At this point, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's passable. There's really nothing much to make fun of that you would make fun of somebody like William Shatner and Mike Comanche for. There's a few spaghetti western standbys in there, like perennial Aldo Sambrell, Fernando Rey, and regular love interest Nicoletta Machiavelli. But it's really kind of all about Corbucci's flair for this sort of gritty revenge yarn. Bert doesn't get a lot of lines. He doesn't pull some grout as Eastwood did in his Leone trilogy. But, you know, like I said, he's okay. If you're not fond of Bert, this may actually be the film for you, as he's not himself at all here. He's more of a convenient cipher, does exactly what's required of him, doesn't come off too stiff or plastic, but isn't exactly obtrusive either. Plus, there's that lovely cheesy earworm of a soundtrack from Ennio Marcone, which turns a stereotypical Indian war dance into this endless repetition of the film's title, Navajo Joe, Navajo Joe. <laughs> so I'll get that one out of your head. Uh, I, I, I couldn't really add anything to you to what you said. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's also interesting that a year previous to this, he was in this weird U.S. Euro 
I guess we can call it a pseudo-Euro-spy thing called Operation CIA, which I saw years ago. Black and white, too, where he pretty much plays a white, white, dinner-jacketed secret agent. And, you know, Bert was kind of balding then. Um, you know, he didn't really get to the uh, toupee stage till later on, let's yeah. say, post-deliverance. But um, it was pretty decent in that because it wasn't what you expected. Actually, anybody ever sees Operation CIA or has the chance to, it's, it's worth tracking down. It's it's sort of like, just imagine one of those Eurospy pictures with like a Stuart Granger thrown in. See, here's the thing now. Uh, something, uh, I did a lot of research on Bert for this show, and I don't want to bore everybody because we have a lot of films to cover. We're not going to, of course, cover everything. No. We probably name check a few things, but um, he was very well liked yeah. by the studio heads and he was a contract player we we didn't if folks who've been doing the show for years a lot a lot of our, our uh, people who've been around were studio contract players i.e you get signed you know john saxon was one example you you get signed to a studio like universal paramount whatever was around first artists which became united artists and you did a lot of pictures for them some of which you really didn't want to do but you're locked into the studio contract now, Bert was doing small roles, bit parts, the occasional supporting part in a lot of films and TV for Universal, for one. And they really liked him. They really liked him. But they tried to get to a director who said, hey, put him in your movie. And, they, and the directors would usually say, no, nah, I don't think he's strong enough. So this is how he ended up at Navajo Joe with, you know, the Clint Eastwood route going overseas, how he got into the operation CIA. Now, oddly enough, something's going to happen right after Navajo Joe. He does this movie called 100 Rifles, and it starts hinting at a change right on the heels of Navajo Joe the next year in 1969. This is, you know, so black black exploitation. You know. In hindsight, we did several shows about this mm-hmm. theme, subject. I don't know how is it appropriate anymore. But anyway, black exploitation films started to really strike out. And so Jim Brown... This is the star of this thing. Raquel Welch, yes, because she was hot then. And Burt Reynolds. And and so it's a weird kind of exploitation. It's a little dark. Not soldier blue, dirty, nasty. But it's definitely hints in that direction, you know, with, with themes of rape, racism. Um, it's like uh, you got three characters put together, and they're going to do something against the, the people they decide you know, against all they're they're adversaries, these three people. But they're gonna they're gonna band together to get to go against somebody else, you know. And Bert starts showing some really good grit in this picture, I thought. So there's that. He, I saw Sam Whiskey and Shark, which is the Sam Fuller picture that Sam Fuller didn't even really like. And then Bert did a thing called Skullduggery. So this is right pre foes. Skullduggery I remember because I saw it on a double bill with Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I'm like, what is this thing? Roger C. Carmel. Wow. Who we all, <laughs> who we all remember from um, Star Trek. Yep. And My Mother the Car. <laughs> Which now, folks, the 60s were weird. Yes, they and were. need I say more? This, this guy's or the mother, whoever it was. Somebody's mother dies, and she comes back as a car. Yes. And the, the the hood would open up as she talked to the son, the handbag son. Right, the hood would open up, <laughs> but they had some quasi-weirdo psychological babble shit yeah. going on with that show. 
and some of it was psychosexual too. Yeah, it was fucked up I'm in many very <laughs> Yes, yes, there was no carburetor banging, folks. You know, but um, it wasn't like there Mr. Was def- Ed, which you would think this was a strange show. There's a reason you don't see it. Wow, I wasn't even going to go there, Mr. Ed. You sick bastard. But anyway, well, Mr. Ed wasn't uh, as sick as my mother in the car. <laughs> it was stupid. No, no, my mother in the car was pretty bad. Roger, Roger replaced someone who passed away uh, mid-season, but he's more known, well known. As Harry Mudd. Yes. From a few of the uh, Star Trek shows. Anyway, so Skullduggery was, uh, Bert was an adventurer, and Roger was a sleazy pseudo-sociological scientist, and they actually find Neanderthals. They actually found a Neanderthal woman in, uh, I think it was South America, some Southeast Asian country, and then there was uh, a court case whether uh, the person is actually human. It was actually a serial, half serious, half bizarre movie, sort of like a, a WTF kind of movie, like, wow. And I mean, oh, I'm seeing Conquest of the Planet Apes, definitely one of the better Planet of the Apes films, and like this was a double bill, and like, wow. Skullduggery was such a bizarre movie, you could see maybe Bert was a little embarrassed to be in it, but he actually did a held up his end of the bargain pretty well. So, so but so he does a couple of weird movies. Next was Fuzz. Yes. Bert's early films were, as you can hear, strange. They were clearly yes. looking for a place he might fit after all the cowboy television and yes. film work, but it seemed like nothing really fit the guy, especially in the entirely bizarre run of pictures he did in 1972. This one's sort of trying to cross the hippie shtick of Spies, which we talked in our Elliot Gould and Don Sutherland shows, and MASH, which we talked about those shows as well, with the urban cop film, making something that's mostly comedy, but unfunny and sort of precinct-based, gritty urban policiere, but nothing ever gels. There's no main character, there's no real plot. It looks about right visually, but it's the laugh-in aesthetic. All little skits and vignettes that just don't work. There's also an ugly real-life incident or two that appeared to have predated that whole stupid trend of... Remember the program where those jocks were hazing each other by laying in the middle of the street and winding up getting run over by cars? This mm. film has a few scenes relating to teens setting bums on fire, of all things. And some black has decided to set both a white girl and a black bum on fire not long after the film's release. Yay, society? So, anyway, that and the presence of Yul Brenner as a deaf crime lord make the film sound a whole lot more gritty and serious than it comes off, but it's all weird sex jokes, ostensibly good-natured ribbing between a, quote, hip 70s department filled with youngsters, kind of like a Mad Magazine thing, but doesn't work, like Burt, Tom Skerritt, Raquel Welcher in there. You also get Cleopatra Jones herself, Tamara Dobson, and Kojak's boss, Dan Fraser, in much the same role, but... It's a confused mess that can't decide what the hell it's supposed to be, and nobody stands out enough to make any sort of impression. I can't say I liked it much, but I didn't hate it either. It's below average regardless. What's your take? It's below average, but, you know, I think the film's posters really trying to sell a movie, and then when you get to the movie, it's like, this is not the movie I thought it was going to see. Notice, folks, have very rarely seen a trailer from this film. They don't even know how to sell it. Really? No, think about it. If you think about it, trailer collections, and you know, over the years we've seen dozens, if not more. You've never seen a Fuzz trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this was a movie they tried to market, and they just put it out there. It came from a major studio. Nice cast, interest, well, interesting cast. Supposedly, Bert hated Raquel Welch, and vice versa. Um, don't know why it's still too early in their careers for anybody to hate anybody. You know, neither one of them's Neither one of them has that prima donna entitlement, let's say, at this point. But there's a movie with with uh, Irish director John Borman. 
which is still powerful to this day, that Burt had a supporting role in that suddenly skyrocketed. Yeah, it definitely made his name, for better or worse. Uh, you know, we're definitely going to disagree on this one. Every time I hear yeah. someone call this a classic or refer to it in praising tones, I scratch my head. I mean, there's got to be something I'm missing, right? So here we are doing a Burt Reynolds show, and you know I have to give it what must be probably the 10th time of watching this thing over the years, and I hated it more than ever. I mean, these four well, it's not a likable movie, though. It's not. These yeah, four not. dopes go out in the backwoods territory to canoe a river like a bunch of fucking deluded Boy Scouts and never ran into Red State Trump supporters before. Surprise, surprise, the hicks can't stand them city slickers with all their smarts and culture and a few dollars to their name. So after a weird dueling banjo sequence with some creepy-looking retarded kid, our sensitive new men wind up tied to a tree and made to watch and wait their turn as these manly southern paragons proceed to fly the rainbow flag all over fatty Ned Beatty's ass. Squealing like a pig, boy. Then they mean to take turns before, yeah, they're straight, before moving on to the other guy. Luckily, Bert is a Ted Nugent-type bow hunter and kills the one who didn't get his load into Ned yet. Now, they're panicking about someone discovering the body, the other guy tattling, or anyone discovering that Beatty is now officially a brony. More or less, they make it out alive. The end. There were dozens of films along these lines made in the wake of the hippies' delusional drive to find the real America. After years of indoctrination with indigenous folk music and Graham Parsons era birds, pushing everyone into this flirtation with country. But what they found in this all-over films like this, Easy Rider, Brotherhood of Satan, Enter the Devil, Race with the Devil, The Hills Have Eyes, so on and so forth, especially once you get out of the major populated eras, the only difference is all of those other films that I mentioned were good, or at least had some measure of entertainment value. Unless you're, like, in the closet and harboring some secret wish to get forced into a Ned Beatty situation, I can't honestly envision why anyone would enjoy subjecting themselves to this overrated piece of shit. Didn't John Borman do Zardoz and Excalibur? Watch those instead. Consign this piece of shit to the flames. I hate this film. I always hated this film. I hate it even worse now. What's your take? <laughs> I guess you don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough movie. It's a tough movie. Okay, for me... It was even harder because it was it was when it was first came out. The co-feature was a Clockwork Orange on the re-release. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a wonderful <laughs> evening I had! Bring your girlfriend to see those. <laughs> Deliverance and a Clockwork Orange. Oh you know, um, uh, then they re-released Deliverance, but with Ingmar Bergman's cries and whispers, and that's when the woman was masturbating with the broken champagne glass. When you left the theater, uh, were you checking out everybody around you to make sure they weren't going to jump you? <laughs> <laughs> Those two films. <laughs> I tell you, man, I get it. I, I, yeah, thank you for name-checking all those movies. Yeah, we've seen this plot device uh What's it called? Machinante, whatever, you know, it's, it's a fancy term for it. We see this plot device a lot. Um, and yeah, you, you very well spoke where, you know, the, how it naturally grew. Um, it's scary, you know, it's funny. The 1972, and if you occasionally do road trips now, mm-hmm. and if you, I've been to Kentucky, and I've been to uh, northern Ohio, deep in the country, and I've been to what's uh, what's near Kentucky? Uh, it's another state there. I've been there too. You get off the road and you pull into a town, and I've experienced things like, oh damn, I'm out of cigarettes. Are you from New York? Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Are you from New York? New York? Yes, yes. How can you tell? You sound like you're from New York. Oh, yes. Can I have a pack of Marlboro, please? What are you doing here? I'm just driving around. Ah, okay. 
Yeah, New York must be falling, huh? And you know, has this really happened to me? And and, and you think about movies like Deliverance or shit. I've actually had experiences, not like you no know, Deliverance, but I had some guy oh. threaten to kill me for checking on his girlfriend in a Piggly Wiggly in South Carolina. I've had experiences in Florida that I will never return to either of those states again. I actually drove. I was supposed to wait for a flight to come back. I rented a car and drove 11 and a half hours to what should have been about a 16-hour drive just to get the fuck out of that state. Yeah, I will mm. not go down south again. I am sorry. There's no reason. Yeah, and, and this is like hardcore. You know, Georgia Mountain. You know, yeah. this is like Appalachian Mountain. They literally this know when, like, when you walk in a place. They do that bless your old heart kind of shit and smile at you. And then they scare them when you walk in and out. They're gossiping about you. Every head turns when you walk into like a Stuckey's or something. Like, how do you fucking know? <laughs> I didn't say anything. So, so with all that being said, between the both of us, I mean, I get it. You don't like it. it it's a hard film to like once you, once you finish watching it. You know, just like, wow. And if you go to rewatch it, you know what's coming. Mm-hmm. It's vicious, it's brutal. I'm surprised. I think it was Warner Brothers. I'm surprised that they actually let this go forward. Yeah. Even even though it's 1972, that there's so much going on in this movie that's just totally broke barriers. Yeah. Broke barriers. Because it's admitting to what can happen. Yep. You know, it's admitting it's admitting to stuff that's out there. All, all joking aside, uh, all, with no hints at homophobic anything i mean these guys are raped by just inbred beast creatures well that's what it is my joke is that these guys think they're all like you know tough heteros or whatever the hell like oh look at them good old boys waving the flag and here they are as gay as shit i mean come on come out of the closet already maybe you won't be so dangerous oh they're not just not gay they'll fuck anything yeah that's the point i think they're right yeah they probably did And, and you know it's shocking and and the but see I think I think what Borman really did well was he showed brutality at its worst. Yeah. So here's Reynolds, who we saw as a pretty good body. You know, he wore that kind of like uh, cut off, uh, you know, uh, vest, mm-hmm. and it showed him like even being more brutal. You know, he's just gone. I'm gonna kill these fucking guys. Yeah. You know, look what they did. You know? He doesn't want to save the day, but like I said, he's like a Ted Nugent type. What is that saying? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but. It's still a powerful film, like it or not. And I'll leave it at that. Like it or not, because it's it's just going to affect you no matter how how you look at yeah. it. Borman went on to a uneven career. Um, Heretic Two, The Exorcist Two. Uh, <laughs> I like that film, strange as it is. <laughs> no, no, but still an uneven career. Oh, yeah. Zardoz, you know, um, Excalibur, Zardoz. What else did he do? He did a whole bunch of strange films. Uh, did we- do, do we ever do the films of John? We Bond? should. We should, bro. Um, but but Deliverance, like it or not, was the thing that that suddenly bang. Yep. It did okay business at the box office, but he was so sh- you know he was a virile. Here's the thing: he, be, he the Burt Reynolds you might have seen in like A Hundred Rifles, Skullduggery, Navajo Joe. Maybe if you remember, remember him from TV. This movie made him the virile hero. And in the next two years, suddenly he would get this image of being this, you know, good old boy or whatever. And he changed it. It wasn't dark like this, but. No, no, it wasn't dark like this. But suddenly he became like the, you know, like, wow. Yep. It made him a star. Then he grew a stash. Yep. And then suddenly he was like, guys, guys wanted, wanted him to do them. <laughs> and girls wanted to do them. Oh, yeah. 
Right? Is that is that the best way to put it? Yeah, he was very popular with the ladies. I can attest to that. I remember that. He was very popular with the ladies. I'm sure a lot of guys put that poster from Cosmo <laughs> up on their or, – or Penthouse or whatever it was – up on their walls. And he just bent over with the chill. <laughs> Bert. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> he, he cameoed. He cameoed for Woody yes. Allen of all things, and a terrible Woody Allen. It movie. actually everything is. You always, everything you always want no. to know about sex as a sperm switchboard yes, operator. Yes, everything you always want to know about That's... sex, we're afraid to ask. Really early on to the careers of both Bert and director Woody Allen comes this oddity of an Italian-style historical sex comedy. I think it was like Sex Through the Ages, but based on questions pulled from a then-popular Kinsey Report Joyous Sex-style book, they didn't answer frequently asked questions about doing the nasty. The actual connection to that book is really loose, except for the gimmick of pulling actual questions, and then building scenarios that very broadly connect to each, and it's not one of Allen's best. I mean, What's Up Tiger Lily was the original bawdier, laugh-a-minute wrist tracks or mystery science. Play It Again, Sam, was a riot riffing off of modern relationships as contrasted with Casablanca. Take the Money and Run is a hilarious film. Films like Eddie Hall, Manhattan, and Stardust Memories were still to come. I wouldn't go that far. He would, but, uh... He'd go a bit too highbrow <laughs> with Love and Death, too political with Bananas, and he hit a popular crest with a rather silly Barbarella Zardos Pistake Sleeper. People love that film still. This was somewhere in the middle. It was one of his few films that revolves entirely around sex without much of the arthouse classic cinema or intellectual elements to offset it. He does throw a hint of Macbeth to the Lynn Redgrave bit and a touch of 60s Euro film into the Louise Lasser segment, which is easily the best skit here. He intended Fellini, but I saw some Radley Metzger, a touch of Antonioni, a bit of Alan Robegoulet, and more than a hint of Godard in this as well. Even having said that, the film comes off less pointed than usual when you've got him closing the film on playing a kamikaze sperm on a last run. Burt's in the company of Gene Wilder, Tony Randall, Regis Philbin, John Carradine, and the Joker's Wilds game show host Jack Barry, and gets the odd role of, as you mentioned, the switchboard operator, or relaying the play-by-play, and telling Woody and the other sperm when it's time to launch in its last segment. I still think that the third segment should have been excised and put into one of his other better films, so everyone can just pass this one over. It is not one of Woody's best. No, that's... <laughs> I think we both discussed this just now. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing more to say. Yeah. So next up he does, uh, we're in 1973, thank God, <laughs> and things get a little more normal. Seamus is one of the few Burt films in my own collection, and it's a real surprise when you discover it, because it's unlike almost anything else in his filmography. He's doing a full-on neo-noir. We talk stuff like Clute in our Donald Sutherland show, Farewell My Love Me on our Charlotte Rampling show, and The Last Goodbye in our Elliot Gould show, all of which harken back to classic films like The Big Sleep, which we talked in our Humphrey Bogart show. Well, this one more closely than the others, because while he's not necessarily the perfect fit for the role, he's going full-on Raymond Chandler here, like Bogart in The Big Sleep. He keeps running into gorgeous women and banging them on screen or off. There's even a direct swipe of the bookstore seduction, this time with a curvaceous redhead. In fact, of the four or five women he puts the make on here, the only one who really isn't worth a second glance is one of our headliners, the Anderson Tapes' Diane Cannon, who we mocked in our Sean Connery show. But it's not just the distaff interest that calls the big sleep to mind. There's double crosses on double crosses, murders, dinner with mobsters, visits to an equally crusty police officialdom, and a blind diamond merchant who hires him to solve one mystery, only to turn out connected to some military malfeasance. It's complicated. Burke goes from punching bag to hyperviolent to drop of a hat. He strangles pigeons and minor thugs with chains to pump them for info. Is it as good as Last Goodbye or Feel All My Lovely? No, I really wouldn't say that. Just because he doesn't always seem to know how to play it. But it's a good film, and it's actually a hidden gem in the Burt Reynolds filmography. I do like this film. What's your take? No, oh, uh, again, I, I agree with you on everything you said. No need to repeat it. And yes, it's it's under it's an underrated film. And uh, one post uh, Burt's uh, demise of a year or so ago, I think that whoever owns the rights should try to put that back out. Uh, that's a movie that does, deserves a nice 4K presentation. It's funny that some of Burt Reynolds' better films 
And some of it was like the ones with some like like hustle, starting over, rough cut. Some of his better pictures are very soft focused. Uh, it's like uh, what's the one with Catherine Deneuve? Um, hustle. Hustle. Yeah, it's like so much soft focus. We think Bert is acting with a ghost. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just uh, like who's shooting these things? You know, the DPs. Uh, a lot of the DPs from Hollywood these days were actually moonlighting, doing porn. We know this for a fact. So, like, they weren't doing that shit in the porn pictures because they were beautiful looking. Some of the best porn films from the best golden age porno directors. And yet they're doing major Hollywood pictures. And, like, uh, let's, how much soft focus are we doing on that camera pull there? You gotta uh, wonder just... if it had something to do with the actresses where they wanted to make them look more beautiful by cutting all the wrinkles out of their faces. Yeah. Or if it was everybody's watching too much Ingemar Bergman, <laughs> they just wanted to look too been. dark. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a, a, ha- a hazy shade there. No, but I agree. And Seamus, really good yeah. film. Unfortunately, I think this active year, Bert or Felia, he decides to get a big head. So yes. he does the man who loved cat dancing. Major misstep, but it did not put him out of step for too long. Yeah, so it's... Who was the woman that he co-starred with this? In? Um, was it Bergen? Um, Who was in that one? Oh, it's so bizarre. It's 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 a neo-western about this guy who loves this woman, but he's a bad man. It's sort of like Charles Bronson's Breakheart Pass, uh, not Breakheart Pass, sorry, From Noon to Three, which was a few years down the road, did this kind of thing a lot better. This is kind of like a drifter in a western format, but we. I'm trying to think who the woman was. This was a bad movie. <laughs> and everybody was kind of thinking, like, what are they thinking? First of all, it was long. And um, so Sarah Miles. Yes. Oh. Sarah Miles. Okay. So <sighs> this was a movie that started out with as a grunge. We thought it was an innocent film. And it started out to become a grunge fest. Okay. So. Put a lot of sound garden. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So he's an outlaw. He's married to this Native American woman, right? Named Cat Dancing. Boom. So she's raped and murdered. Oh, jeez. And so right away we're doing this hard-edged kind of Western thingy again. But so she's raped and married, so he goes apeshit. But he's trying to find who's responsible for the crime. But guess what? Once he investigates, he finds everybody in town is pretty much implicated. Implicated, guilty. Sarah Miles is like this local hooker. George Hamilton is in this thing. Yes, that guy. Playing one of the almost worth seeing because George Hamilton is playing like a real cheesy bastard. Odd cast, Lee J. Cobb, Jack Warden, Bo Hopkins. Okay, you can see Bo. Robert Donner, the director, is in this thing. James Hampton, who actually shows up in The Longest Yard and was in F Troop as Dobbs. Jay Silverheels is in this. Wow, Tonto. Tonto, yeah. It, it's, it did not do well. It had a budget of $3 million. It bought in $3 million. This was not the movie people wanted to see Hero Burt do. It was almost like an anarchist film. Um, Richard C. Serafian was an uneven film director, produced by Martin Pohl and Eleanor Perry. Eleanor Perry wrote the screenplay. Yeah, who is she? I don't know. I'm trying to take a look. But... <sighs> This movie also had drama behind the scenes. While they were filming, Sarah Miles' personal assistant was found dead in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. The night before the cast and crew go out to celebrate Burt Reynolds' birthday, 
Suey Miles was in Burt Reynolds' room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With a masseuse. Mm-hmm. He did like older women. <laughs> yeah, I, I this, this thing. And so, I mean, how does everybody know about this? Because when the guy was found dead in her trailer. Ah. So on and so forth. Police investigations. The movie comes out to be, eh, really weird. But this is not a unusual thing. This is par for the course. We're going to discuss a lot of unusual Perfettles films. Yes. Uh, hopefully this won't be more of our biblical length shows. We're going to try to <laughs> but try to pick up the speed. White so, Lightning is next. Here's where he goes into this whole good old boy shtick. And when I found out that was hilarious, I didn't realize this. I bought into that for years. He always said he came from Georgia or some shit. No, he was actually from Michigan, and then he grew up. His family like moved down to Florida. Okay, yeah, that's still down south, but not in the same way that you know, like Georgia is. So anyway, you know, popular opinion. Whenever you hear it regurgitated, realize someone somewhere fed propaganda to folks, and everyone else didn't want to stand out from the crowd, so they kind of mindlessly repeat this regardless of truth. Often they convince themselves this must be true because everyone says so. Such is the case of the two Gator McCloskey films. Look into them, and most people, at least on the internet these days, will tell you, oh, White Lightning, oh, that's great, that's the one to watch, where the far more likable comedic Gator is some sort of letdown, if not a flop. And again, i got to say, are you people seeing this crap even watching the same movies as I am? I mean, really, this far more grim and depressing revenge film puts Burt's Gator as a guy doing hard time for running shine, only to hear that his little brother was killed by the local sheriff. As he knows firsthand that the sheriff is in on the shine operation, he makes a deal with the feds to nail the guy in some hard evidence. The rest of the film is Burt ingratiating himself to the sheriff's people and running shine for him, before he gets sussed out, beaten up badly by perennial hick R.G. Armstrong, and finally getting the evil sheriff to chase him into the local river, where the guy drowns. I mean, how many times have you seen this in the Dukes or what have you? They always just swim out and throw a fit. But nope, this guy dies. Quick funeral, roll credits. This film is a mess, and woefully miscast the boot. Gator's such a better film, more like a down-home version of Joe Don Baker's Mitchell. This film doesn't even succeed at being a walking tall. It's not the worst film Bird ever did, but wow, is it overrated. Well, I, I remember seeing this in the theater, and I was like, well, okay, you know, got a great, fun cast of guys chewing the scenery, you know, Bob uh, Dent Beattie, you know, from uh, Deliverance. Deliverance um, yeah. Uh, Bo Hopkins, fun guy, Archie Armstrong, he's, he always plays bad guys so well, so on and so forth. The thing about this, yeah, Gator is much better, which is actually a movie Burt Reynolds directed. Yes. But uh, it, it did really well because, financially, because this whole thing, they were aware of, for some reason, I, I guess it was the South, the Southern market, where Deliverance did really well. We don't want to ask, we don't want to know. <laughs> Oh, show me that pig fucking movie again. So, um, but he he was very strong in that South, and he would remain so for well, another 10, 15 years. So, what was those exploitation car movies? Gone in 60 Seconds, and a lot of the rape Too revenge movies. Too Late Blacktop. Yeah, it's like, and usually there were those things, some even made for TV that were pretty brutal, I remember. Like uh, Young or Maturi's mature age white women going to visit a family member her car needs gas in the small town she's thrown to jail and gang raped you know mm-hmm. shit like that so they make this movie because they're like they're probably looking at the box office receipts for deliverance and you know those southern boys ran out of lube watching that scene <laughs> so they probably, they probably figure let's put Bert in this thing because they're still probably looking for 
the thing that works for him, you know? Right. Yep. Uh, which we, we discussed a little while ago. And so this did work for him. It was a huge box office hit in, in the States. Guess where they released this thing? World premiere in Benton, Arkansas. Say <laughs> no more. Say no more. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I do. I do like Gator better. Also, Gator Gator has a nice comic charm to it. Jimmy yes. Reed helps a lot. We'll get to that shortly. The Longest Yard follows this. I really like that film. Okay, I didn't watch because it it's a sports film and I just hate sports. But uh, this is a really good movie. Robert Aldrich, who made so many great films. I think we did a Robert Aldrich show, and if we didn't, we should put that. Write that down. Yeah. Uh, great cast. Robert Aldrich, who who is this guy Robert Aldrich Lewis is talking about? Well, TV guy, pretty much a contract filmmaker, who's a little twist, bit of a twisted guy. You know, he's he did from odd to odd. You know, he'd do a lot of TV. He would do pretty much whatever came his way. And then he would do whatever happened to Baby Jane, probably one of the strangest films, The Dirty Dozen. Killing of Sister George, Lesbian Nuns. Whatever happened to Aunt Alice, he produced. But then he did Too Late to Hero, Michael Caine film. Osana's Raid, Emperor of the North, everyone knows. He did Hustle with Burt. Twilight's Last Gleaming. I mean, Robert Aldrich, very, very interesting feature filmmaker. Um, uh, worthy, worthy of discussion. So he directed this thing with Burt's in Jail, former pro quarterback who supposedly did something as stupid as took his girlfriend's wealthy girlfriend's car without permission car chase ensues sentenced to two years plus in a brutal prison they hate him everybody hates him because they think he's a rich boy he's threatened all the time but it seems like the prison has its own football team most do I guess who knows they're losing all the time they want him to be on the team and to captain the team to victory. Maybe they'll treat him better, and maybe his his uh, what do you call it, sentence will be what do you call it, commiserated, you know, brought down. Yeah. Um, great cast in this. You got Eddie Albert in sicko sicko Eddie Albert mode. Ed Lauder, terrific, is in this. Michael Conrad, James Hampton, I brought up before. Mike Henry, Tarzan, is in this. Bernadette Peters, actually pretty fun. Richie Keel. Jaws, Bob Teshier is in this. Uh, everybody remembers Bob Teshier from a lot of movies, including The Deep, where he had a much better speaking part. So anyway, so Bert agrees to do this rather hesitantly. And, you know, he's called the meme machine, you know, and he, he realizes as they go against, you know, he trains these guys in the prison to be, a, they're, they're killers, right? They're killers. And so, you know, um, He's trying his best to go along with everything, but Ed, Ed Lauder, as a prison captain of the guards, is just brutal, brutal. He actually kills some people during the film, and Bert just really doesn't want to do it, you know, anymore. And he just, they just like, they put a gun on him. And there's a finale where Eddie Albert is yelling, yelling in Ed Lauder's ear, like, shoot him with a sharpshooting gun. He says, shut him! And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. As, as Reynolds about to throw a game, or not. Or win the game, you know, for himself. This did very well. This is the movie that pretty pretty much it's not a sports movie by any means, it's a prison film, which I think really attracted uh, attracted the director to it because it's got a lot of that dirty dozen type thing to it. 
two million dollar budget and made forty four in nineteen seventy four dollars. That's that's real doing really well. The remake with Adam Sandler of all people is not bad. It's one of Adam Sandler's more serious roles and Burt Reynolds plays a supporting part in that. So it's not bad. I really like The Longest Yard, one of Burt Reynolds' finest films. But then he did a bunch of weird movies after this. I thought Billy Madison was one of Adam Sandler's more serious films. No. Uh, anyway, 1975 was this really strange year again for Burt. He does, I believe, two musicals, Long Last Love and Lucky Lady, and the one that sounds close, W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings. Again, I knew the reputation with Long Last Love with Sybil Shepherd. I didn't bother indulging. Did it on Lucky Lady, uh, and I did not see this other one even available. So they're yours if you want them. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Peter, Bogdanovich, Peter Bogdanovich directed that Long Last Love. Burt really wanted to do it. Uh, Sybil Shepard, Madeline Kahn, Dulio Del Preti, who was a thing very briefly, Eileen Brennan, Mildred Atmick, music by Cole Porter, Burt actually sings. Wow. Serviceable. It just, nobody wanted to see it. They even, they skipped on the budget, too, you know. They, it's a period piece, $5 million, it made two. Um, it's not what people wanted to see. He was already tapping into, with his two or three previous movies, to that southern market. Right. You know, and so he makes... A 1920s, 1930s Cole Porter type thing. You know, eh, nobody wants to see that anyway. That's entertainment had already peaked by then. The, the, what that is, is uh, I forgot what the rights hold. I think it was MGM. You know, all those great MGM uh, movies, uh, the musicals and all singing, all dancing thing. They did two or three of those the compilations. They were feature films with contemporary hosts like Gene Kelly today and uh, Fred Astaire today and and Kate Barker today, just joking. Um, <laughs> no, but they were they were pretty good. That's inter, uh, that's entertainment. Then that's entertainment too. The lesser was, of course, the third one. So, but those were pretty popular with the older group. I think they were still unsure where Bert's strong suit was, but the longest yard and uh, Seamus showed where that was, and certainly White Lightning. Mm-hmm. This wasn't it, but he wanted to do it, and uh, from. All I've read, he kind of enjoyed doing it. It was a mistake. A good junk, The Lucky Lady, which a movie nobody likes, nobody working on it. Like <laughs> Stanley Donut, talk about, what was I just talking about? Singing in the Rain, you know, yeah. On the Town, MGM contract filmmaker. Come on. He would step outside the gate when he did um, Charade, which is not a musical. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And. Um, he did make Damn Yankees, one of my favorite pictures. Um, so, you know, very strange. You get a guy who does movie musicals with the famous singer Gene Hackman. <laughs> Liza at the height of her Coke stage, I'm sure, and Burt Reynolds. Uh, Liza's top building, so you know what they were thinking. It's a prohibition-era gangster film. It's a mess. Uh, something you should check out because you have an affinity for this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, like noirs and, mm-hmm. you know, it's. I didn't like it. I think it's terrible. I think it was a huge misstep. This is also, hope you're sitting down, co-produced by George Lucas and Gary Kurtz, responsible wow. for, yes, Star Wars. <laughs> more palatable and much more charming and much more, and it did well. Something called WW and Dixie Dance Kings. Mm-hmm. Bert plays a scammer and a crook. He robs gas stations up and down the south. 
and he comes across a country music band. And there's singer Connie Van Dyke. I wonder if she was related to Jerry. She might have been Jerry Van Dyke. Um, used to be an actor on TV, country singer too. Um, the band's leader is Jerry Reed, who coming in and out of Burt Reynolds' orbit. And um, so Burt decides to sort of pseudo go clean and tries to manage this band. They have a little, a little extra zing in their country music style. And the girl's a good singer, and um, so. He decides to kind of manage them. At first, he thinks of maybe robbing while the band's playing. Then he kind of sees like a little something different. Maybe he will stop doing that. Art Carney, of all people, is a Bible-thumbing lawman. And uh, he's trying to promote Ned Beatty's band, Country Bull. Isn't that funny? <laughs> uh, it's a fun little movie. It's cute. It's not a great film. It's cute. But this movie definitely tapped into that southern market. Made for about three million. I made twenty. So what does that say? They wanted to see Burt Reynolds do these kind of things. It was directed by, up to this point, a veteran rookie of feature films, John G. Avildsen, who the next year would make Rocky. Ned's band should have been Country Pig after Deliverance. <laughs> well, no, it's so it's, it's 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 not a bad film. Hustle. You've seen that. Now, unfortunately, I really wanted to see this one, but its availability, it was out of print for a long time. It seems to have come back. I don't know if it's a DVD or what, but I was not able to get my hands on it in time. So uh, let me know how it is, because I really do want to see it. It seems like it's right up my alley as being uh, another neo-noir. It is definitely a neo-noir. Also directed by Robert Aldrich, Aldrich who I just name-checked uh, a little while ago. Not one of Burt's biggest box office films, but it did well over a period of time. It took a while to actually make its its, its money. Catherine Deneuve is the, is the go-to girl in this. Um, How does it compare to Seamus? It's actually better. Really? Okay. It's actually better. Yeah, it, it's um, a woman's body is found on a beach. He's one of the two uh, L.A. homicide detectives called into the case. And you know where it's a little bit, I'm not, I don't want to spoil it. Think Laura. Oh, okay. Think Laura with Ernie Borgnine, Eddie Albert, Paul Winfield, Ben Johnson, Colleen Brennan, and Jack Carter in the cast. And think, I mean, not as good as Laura, but just think Laura, and this will give you some hints. Um, They're a cold couple. I think that was the problem. But uh, She's cold anyway. I've never seen her really heat up at all. Oh, can you give me two minutes? Sure. Okay, I'll be right back. Okay, thanks for holding. I had to secure something, water my, wet my whistle. (laughs) Water the plants. Where are the plans? Silent movie. <laughs> so um, next up is silent movie. All right. You know, comedy is tough. For one thing, it's very subjective. What's hilarious knee slapper for one person is a po-faced question mark for another. Exactly what did you find so damn funny there? Secondly, it's often very period-specific. What is timely hilarity at one point becomes dated, and the things that one generation finds quite amusing are jaw-droppingly asinine and unfunny to future ones. That's how badly most TV sitcoms hold up. At best, they're trading on nostalgia. You know, you were a fan then, you get attached to these characters, don't you want to revisit them rather than come and share some real laughs? No one's laughing at Cheers anymore, much less the Cosby show. So now we come to the point. One of the most questionable of comedic voices from the 1970s, and almost exclusively thereof, is Mel Brooks. I mean, the best you get is high anxiety, young Frankenstein, the producers, and blazing saddles. A bit of shock humor from the latter parasite. Does anyone find these films funny anymore? It's all terrible, borch-built humor, slapstick, and nonsense. 
Who knows? Maybe it holds up better than the whiny. What terrible calamity will happen next humor of Neil Simon? But he's another one locked to that decade whose fortunes rise and fall between, eh, say, 1968 and 1981 and really no further. So here's one of Burke's weirder outliers, where he knows the washed-up drunk of a director in need of a redeeming hit, who goes to a bankrupt studio about to be gobbled up by another concern with a crazy pitch. Let's make the first silent films in the 1920s. And how the hell do we sell this thing? Big name stars. So the rest of the film is Brooks and his three stooges like pals Dom DeLuise, who's watched that name, they'll keep coming up, and Marty Feldman going around to then big marquee name actors, and managing to recruit them to sign on for this film amidst a lot of really childish, cartoon-level slapstick. The most clever bit is what the whole film hangs its shingle on. The only line of dialogue spoken in the entire film is by the <laughs> French mime Marcel Marceau. Non. That's it. Bert is the first star they go to followed by folks like Paul Newman, James Kahn, and Liza Minnelli. And then there's this weird thing where they all pop up in the shower with him naked and scrub him down. And, uh, and yeah. when that fails, they reappear on stilts as a giant with a glandular problem who winds up being too tall to get in the door, and one thing leads to another. They're all out in the street about to get run over by a steamroller. But he still signs on. Yeah, comedies of this vintage really don't work often unless we're talking Woody Allen, who at least kept things neurotically intellectual. Harmless, but childishly silly. What do you think about this one? You know, it's funny. Uh, Mel Brooks gets smart. Don Adams and Barbara Feldman and a couple other shows suddenly became really successful. Even if the shows didn't have long life between two and three years on TV. And then, you know, Porsche Belt comedian, he wrote a lot of jokes for a lot of famous uh, Steve Allen, probably. And, you know, a lot of people from late 50s, early TV. He worked a lot with Carl uh, Reiner. Remember the thousand-year-old man? Carl Reiner, yes. They worked a lot together. And so... Some after the producers, 1967, it was like three or four years, and then Blazing Sows, followed by Young Frankenstein, and then suddenly the guy was fucking box office gold. Anything he touched yep. was like mint. So what happens when that happens? People go nuts. So he makes silent movie, which is like, okay, uh, when was the last silent movie that was a feature film? <laughs> like 29. <laughs> Yeah, and so um, it's odd, it's weird, it's a little risque, sometimes it's very risque. And you have, you know, and so, and also, because of Young Frankenstein, sorry, Frankenstein. <laughs> That's a joke for the movie, people, yes. <laughs> Frankenstein, yes, uh, that was a football. Marty Feldman, of all people, became a huge thing for a while, for like two or three years, remember this? I ain't got nobody, I like it better than the David Lee Roth version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Marty Feldman, of all people, God bless him, you know, the British, the British character actor with the uh, unusual, <clears throat> yes, uh, Dom DeLuise is now cresting, you know, he's, he's riding high here in this association with Bert pretty much is around this time, so yeah, Bert's in this, I don't know, so was James Conn, so was Liza Minnelli, so was Paul Newman, a lot of people are in this, Charlie Callis, you know, who was the noise guy. Made weird noises with yeah, him. Fritz Fell, the guy who used to always pop his mouth. If you watch enough early 60s TV, folks, Fritz Feld was in everything. Yes. <laughs> it's a bit of a mess. It's not one of Mel's great films. And actually, he would start on his, his downward turn. With this um, film. <laughs> with this film, yeah. Uh, he only would have something a little bit better about five years later when he remade the Jack Benny movie, To Be or Not To Be. Believe it or not, and that was pretty decent. But then he, when he hit History of the World, Spaceballs. Yeah. Well, a lot of people like Spaceballs. I don't. But History of the World, when he's trying to ape Monty Python, and 
Monty Python can do it. And that whole Spanish Inquisition thing, uh, the girl, I was the woman I was seeing at the time, made us walk out of the theater because it was just tasteless. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes, yeah. So there's that. Gators. So that was tasteless in the no, 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 yes. wasn't tasteless. <laughs> when she's going <laughs> humping the guy's penis size were. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's stupid. You laugh at it when you talk about it, but you're watching it, so it's like, this isn't really that funny. I don't know. Whatever. Different generations, I guess. So, uh, Gator, 1976. This is the best of Burt's self-directed good old boy films, and probably the only one where he almost crosses the tropes and feels of those with the cop films he was working on and off throughout the 70s before going more exclusively into the latter in the 80s. Supposedly he was quoted as saying, I waited 20 years to do this, and I enjoyed it more than anything else I've done in film. And honestly, I'd have to agree with him. If you were going to watch only one Burt Reynolds film, who is this guy and do I care about him? This is the film I point you to. This was actually one of the ones that always bugged me every time I talked about, like, ah, oh, jeez. You know, you always heard these stories about Burt being a dick and whatever the hell else. I just I always loved Gator, and I loved a couple of his other films. Basically, Burt is a good old boy shine runner who gets nabbed by the feds who bargained him into an undercover gig with an old pal of his who's become a local mover and shaker. At first, they're getting along fine, but then he starts to bristle at playing bagman for the protections racket or seeing how he turns young cheerleaders into drug-addicted hookers. He tries to get out, but his pal won't let him, and along the way, Bert forms several likable alliances, most of them wind up dead at his old buddy's hands. And yes, it's a comedy, with a lot of feel-good business muddled in between the serious stuff. It's dark as hell at times, but there's a lot of good humor about this, and this sort of thing will actually bring a smile to your lips. Lauren Hutton looks her absolute hottest here. They must have yeah, had some yeah. sort of chemistry, given how well they seem to get on. There's a lot of great supporting characters, from his smoky sidekick Jerry Reed, here crossing the line from old buddy to daddy rival. Talk show host and subpar crooner Mike Douglas is the wishy-washy, polls-obsessed governor. His deliverance pal Ned Beatty is a corrupt sheriff. Bewitched nosy neighbor Alice Ghostly is a likable courthouse clerk who joins forces with him after she gets canned for knowing too much. And his fuzz compatriot Jack Weston porn director Anthony Spinelli's brother, mind, as the FBI agent investigating all the dirty doings in the first place. Oh, is he? Is he? Yes, yeah. he is. Jack Weston is Anthony Spinelli's brother. And he's the FBI guy investigating dirty doings, so you tell me. <laughs> Inside how, joke. How did there. I not know that? Oh, my God. I'm wow. sure it's come up already, but if you pour through the cast list on all these films, you'll see that if you were a friend of co-star Reynolds, you could practically guarantee he'd pull you in for more work soon. Some of these folks many times over before they either uh, fell out or went down different roads. And there's something to be said for that loyalty, whatever he turned into in later years. Like I said in the beginning, that's a good sign. That says something about, you know, at least he can be counted on. If you befriend this guy, he's going to be a friend to you. He'll help you out. Oh, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. It's, so differentiate from White Lightning, is this the one also where there's a, uh, a uh, home for unwed teenage pregnant mothers? I think so because I know the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's a nice little touch in that. They kind of, they're also knocking that whole southern uh, inbred mentality too. There's, there's a lot of interesting thing go, going on here. It's one of the better. You won't see a better directed Reynolds movie for a while, uh, probably until Sharky's Machine, I would yes, say. That's true. But yeah, but it's 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 pretty good. It's enjoyable. And then he goes and does. I guess another musical. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did not see revisit it for the show. He, he rejoins Peter Bogdanovich. I mean, I guess Burt Reynolds really wanted to like, kill his career. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not true. I don't want to even go there. But he, he must have really enjoyed working with Peter Bogdanovich because um, he, he teams up with Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill and Brian Keith and Stella Stevens and, uh, and it goes on and on and on. Lots of familiar people. People who did 
Bogdanovich movies are people like in an orbit. I mean, you get the strange folks, strangest folks, you know. Uh, Brian James is in this thing. You know Brian James. Yeah, sure. and it's it's a throwback film. Ryan O'Neill plays a guy in the early, late teens. Goes from a lawyer to becoming a film director of silent films. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, vulgar leading man is played by our hero, Bert. Um, it's just early days of silent film and it's it's got some songs and it's it's just bad it's terrible it's a bad idea i could say that about a lot of bogdanovich's stuff i mean he's not like a terrible director but he's so pretentious and you see him interviewed in like extras nowadays and he's like the he thinks he's the sine qua non of like serious film auteurs and he's just an asshole and if you look at his track record it's a little spotty you know so i'm not a bogdanovich fan so being what happened with with gator and White Lightning before that, and for that, the for 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 that the uh, they mentioned you that of Hal Needham being in Bert's orbit. So they decide, hey, let's really tap that that southern that southern market. Exactly, this good old boy hardcore. Thing. It's working. Let's let's hit this really hard, and that's what it becomes for several years. Yeah, and so how how much? We're not overreacting, folks. This thing was made for about $4 million budget. Mm-hmm. By the time it finished its run, $10, $10, 1977, $300 million. Yeah, this was um, no hands down here. Everybody talks about Star Wars. Everybody talks about Jaws. This, in Deliverance, this was one of the biggest films of the 1970s. When people talk about stuff, pop culture, you know, it doesn't have to be, oh, look, I'm looking at Oscar winners, I'll talk about Chinatown or something. Nobody talked about Chinatown back then. You went into the 80s, still people were talking about Smokey and the Bandit. This Mm -hmm. film was huge in the popular culture. It captured the minds of people. It almost directly inspired shows like The Dukes of Hazzard. It inspired a plethora of lookalikes, copies, soundalikes. Convoy movies, yes. Um, Jan Michael Vincent pictures, you know. uh, We saw everybody sees truckers. When you're driving, when you're on a road trip, you're driving on a Monday and Wednesday, which we used to call back in those days uh, truck days because of deliveries to and from supermarkets, Mm -hmm. you know. And I, you would always like, oh, there's a lot of trucks on Rose Truck Day. And so the thing is, with Smokey and the Bandit, they tapped into this with with Bert and Jimmy Reed, amiable, you know, good friends in real life, you know, and at least I assume so. And uh, playing bootleggers, driving Coors beer, thank God it's not Corona. They <laughs> uh, got, you know, and Jackie Gleason's. Buford D. Justice, blustery Texas County Sheriff. And, and uh, you know, Jackie Gleason from The Honeymoon. Talk about a career resurrection. Mm-hmm. And that kept him up. Not only did it, was it a career resurrection, the Smokey and the Bandit film suddenly took Jackie Gleason, brought the reruns of The Honeymooners back into focus. Mm-hmm. He started doing movies with Richard Pryor. Yep. Remember? Yep. I mean, God bless Jackie Gleason. Y'all. You know, I'm sure Jackie Gleason said, God bless you, Burt Reynolds, you know, for resurrecting my career. I don't know much about him. I'm sure he was tough to deal with. He was known to be a bit of a man in charge. Mm-hmm. And a schmaltzy uh, conductor. He was like the Matavani of his time. Yeah, but, yeah, but you know, he, he was talented. He was very – you watch those honeymooners things. He was extremely talented. He was very – I'm sure he was a hardworking, chain-smoking – Yeah, he had to be an stereotype. <sighs> And, and hard drinking, too. He always struck me as a hard drinker, you know. 
I'm, I'm sure anybody that worked with Jackie was probably drinking just to keep up with him. Um, this is a you know, it's a tight cast. It's a tight cast. Tarzan, Mike Henry, you worked with Burt before, plays Jackie Gleason's son. Oh, uh, you know, Mike's a big guy, you know, and plays Junior. Mm-hmm. And he's always like, hey, Dottie, you know. Now, here's the thing. Discuss Sally Field. What, just off the top of my head? Yeah, like, why, why, why is Sally Field and Bert a thing in this movie? But I they mean, really why? were in real life. And I'll, I'll tell you something about that. It's amazing because this girl is freaking Gidget, the flying nun. I mean, you know, milk toast, mamby pamby, 60s, Sandra D for TV kind of stuff. And all that of a sudden, thought. she became yes. this massive sex symbol for a couple of years. Later on, she'd run it down the toilet doing stuff like Norma Ray. But, you know, right. she was pretty hot in this. And you could see that they really did have something going on. You could see why they got along. You could see why he was attracted to her. You know, it's, it was a surprise. So so let me ask you this. Did, did you want to do Sally when you saw this? When I saw mm-hmm. this film, yes. Otherwise, no, I, never, <laughs> I never thought of it once. But this film, Norma yeah. Norma Ray, no. But this film, yes. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. I mean, you see her on the street, so I feel, nah, you got to be kidding me. But seeing this film, especially again, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you could see it. See, but see, that's the thing, though. You could see it. You could see it. Yeah. And I like when people have chemistry. Yes, very much so. I like, and you could tell when people don't have chemistry, it kills a picture. Yep. Uh, tidbit, Michael Mann, the movie director mm-hmm. that we know and love, actually is in this movie in a small part as a deputy. Because Michael Mann started out as an actor. So there's that. Uh, so, you know, without beating Smoking a Bandit to death, it it's started a whole thing. Semi-Tough came next. Well, actually, time. I didn't even get to say my part yet. <laughs> so we flipped it around this oh, time. Oh, please do. Please do. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So it shows you where folks' heads were at in the 70s. This is the highest-ranking film of 1977, bar Star Wars. Burt Reynolds, Jerry Reed, and Jackie Gleason, eastbound and down, nearly swept the rear in profits. So here's the plot, if you can believe this. Two rich drunks... One is this giant man mountain type. The other is little Paul Williams, who was ubiquitous at this time. Keep paying off truckers at 18-wheeler races, no less, to run a truck full of beer. Not hard liquor, mind. Beer across the county line into a dry county just so they can souse it up when a racer they sponsor wins at some NASCAR event. And the cops are out on Forza to catch these guys and prevent this. This is what the law is worried about? Anyway... It gets stupider when Bert, the wheelman who has to attract the attention and keep the cop's eyes off the 18-wheeler, picks up a hitchhiker who turns out to be a runaway bride, Sally Field. So for the rest of the movie, Bert thinks they're after him as planned, but they're really after his passenger because the jilted party is Sheriff Jackie Gleason's dumb son. Bert and Sally fall for each other. They succeed but get challenged to an unrelated double-or-nothing run. Film ends. That's it. Second to Star Wars, folks. The big gimmick here is that one-ups earlier chase films like Vanishing Point, Two-Lane Blacktop, or Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, and looks to CB culture like Convoy and the Dukes of Hazard is the constant contact between our heroes and the baddies. The bulk of the film is actually Gleason catcalling Reynolds and is delivering some snarky comeback or laughing it off and saying nothing just to make him stew. It should be noted that Fields managed to lose a lot of her Gidget Flying Nun image and the soon-to-come Norma Ray grim drama persona in her films with Bert to the point where they come off like Eddie Van Halen and Valerie Bertinelli, this goofy but likable couple that's hard to stay mad at. Sally Fields said that Bert was the love of her life when he passed recently, and here you can see it. All right, so next up, you went to Semi-Tough. Again, that was another football movie, so all yours. Uh, you went sports films. I just hate sports, I'm sorry. I grew up with a father that was obsessed with sports. But this is a good movie. This is a good movie, man. I'm telling you, man. So anyway, Michael Ritchie did Robert Redford's The Candidate, a couple other things. Terrible movie called Smile, but almost killed his career. One of the few 
African-American film directors actually working in Hollywood. I, I, I think it was on the DL that he was actually black. I swear to God, because he made a lot of high-profile movies. I kid you not. Prime Cut, Downhill Racer, Bad News Bears, The Island, Michael Caine, the favorite Prime of Prime Cut was great. I hate the author. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying that I think they totally, totally kept it on the DL that he's like, not white. You know what I'm saying? Strange movie. So David Merrick, the mercurial Broadway film producer, but a fan of Burt Reynolds, he probably, uh, apparently he liked Burt. You know, Burt, we totally skipped, folks. I'm so sorry about this. I made a lot of notes, but I wanted to keep the show rolling. Burt worked a lot of years doing summer stock, doing off-Broadway, and doing Broadway, even musicals. That's why he has an affinity for musicals. And I'm sure David Merrick was a guy that was in his sphere of, of friends. Two former blacklisted film scriptwriters, Walter Bernstein and Ring Lardner Jr., worked on this. It was based on a book by Dan Jenkins, which I, I read. Not as huge fans. I don't like sports at all, so I'm not a huge fan. But how could you say no to this movie? Because this is one of the first films with Chris Christopherson after a couple of offbeat roles, uh, early 70s, maybe 71, 72. They were trying to make Chris, who was a singer-songwriter, a thing, and they just weren't right. So Bert and Chris are two football guys who... <laughs> I don't know. How do you describe this movie? It's it's about being tough and getting older. I think that's what it is. Much less, uh, much like a Nick Nolte uh, football film, which I really like when Nick was young. A uh, good cast: Carl Weathers, Brian Denny, Ron Silver. We all remember Ron. Mm-hmm. Lata Lenya from from Russia loves him. Bert Convy, Robert Preston is the team's guy. Jill Clayberg is the uh, Sally Field stand-in. It's an unusual movie because it also it also checks on drug abuse in sports, which is something that really was kind of hidden in those days. Also hints on, which was in the book, too, by Dan Jenkins. I also hints on new the rise of New Age stuff and sexuality and all that. I kind of liked it. It's a quirky little comedy that actually fits Reynolds, fits Christopherson. They're a really good team together. And they both look like they really pumped up extra fit. Poster for Semi-Tough. Made the movie look like, uh, I don't know, what was that movie of Victoria Vectory and William Smith uh, about vampire chicks or whatever? I don't know. <laughs> it just made it look like a really sexier film than it was. But it's a fun, ribald movie. Semi-Tough is cute, to say the least. Bert seriously misstepped at the next film, which oh, he directed. The end. Wow, does this film suck. Another one of those weird, depressing black comedies of the era. This one centers on mortality. Yay, that's fun. Good things to put a comedy about. And guess what? Just like another of his all-time worst films, Stick, it was even directed by Burt Reynolds. The man really wanted to make this fucking film. Kind of like Heaven Can Wait, Oh God, You Devil, or Devil and Max Devlin, which we talked in our Ellie Gould show. Without any of the positive bits, this one's all about Burt discovering from Dr. Norman Fell. That's right, don't ask me, ask God and Mr. Roper himself, that he has <laughs> leukemia and is doomed to a slow and painful demise. So after an initial period of total shock, he decides, hey, I'm going to kill myself. But first, let me visit my girlfriend, the ex-wife, my strange kid, my folks, etc., just to see them one last time but not tell them why. Of course, they're all obnoxious and his plans fall far short of expectations. As if that weren't up funny enough, he winds up failing his planned suicide and in a nut house where he becomes a good pal of a serial killer, Dom DeLuise. From here on, it's like buddy-buddy without Walter Matthau's sardonic piss takes or Klaus Kinski. Yeesh. I recently watched The Nude Bomb with the wife. 
you know, the Get Smart theatrical movie from last yeah, time? Yeah. I figured she likes spies. She likes airplane, naked gun. Why not? All the jokes fell flat was the verdict. And honestly, she was right. How much more so this depressing failure of an ostensible comedy? Well, I think uh, Bert hanging out with Mel Brooks suddenly had a huge influence on him. Yeah, and you know what? It's sad to say is, as regardless that this was such a bad movie, still made a lot of money. It did. Because uh, he was so popular. We had then girlfriend on screen and off uh, Sally Field in this, Strother Martin, David Steinberg, who was a comedy guy, who briefly was counterculture, but I can't remember why. Uh, Paul Newman's uh, Mrs. Joanne Woodward's in this, so we're going to lend a little gravitas to this thing, right? Uh, Norman Fell, you, you already mentioned. Christy McNichol here, before we found out she was banging everybody in Hollywood, male and female. <laughs> Pat O'Brien for your noir kind of connection there and mm-hmm. Carl Reiner there goes the connection with Mel Brooks it's a weird movie it's disjointed it's disappointing and why for your second directorial film did you make a movie about trying to kill yourself I think <laughs> he was possibly you know it's possible like you know Truffaut guys like that were making movies like this back in the day and it's probably maybe Bert was like watching a lot of French films but he missed the thing yeah yeah. Now, Hooper did much better. Oh, yeah. Tre- tremendously so. Hal Needham brings back some of the Smokey and the Bandit crew, tags in some future Dukes of Hazard royalty, and goes a bit autobiographical for this oddball, again, quote, comedy that works the same territory Lee Majors would a few years on for the Fall Guy. Yep, this one's all about being a stuntman, which was kind of a thing at the time, the days of Evil Knievel, before he tried to strangle one of his reporters. <laughs> when places like Wild West City and Universal Studios tours are just becoming a thing, and practical effects for car chases, window jumps, and horse races were still integral to cinema. And it's something Needham knew about firsthand, which is where a lot of the disarming warmth comes in. Essentially, Bert's about as famous as a stuntman as stuntmen ever really get, doing charity shows and being recognized among crowds who care about these things. He's on a shitty James Bond knockoff with TV's Batman Adam West, who he's a stunt double for. His best buddy's none other than Sheriff Fresco Pete Coltrane himself, the killer shrews James Best, and the two spend a lot of time exchanging fairly decent impressions of famous Hollywood types of yore between takes. His father's an ex-stuntman and a smoky and off-screen love interest at the time, Sally Field, who'd show up in several films with him around then, as was his want. The man kept his friends and lovers working, as I mentioned. He puts up with his slovenly bullshit and disregard for his own health and future. Apparently, he's taken so many hits, if he goes through this one crazy stunt he signed on for, he could wind up paralyzed. And his bar fight in good old boy ways, there's a really silly bar fight that involves just about everyone in the cast, plus a few drunken cops led by Terry Bradshaw, where everyone runs up thrown out of the bar in such pals that they finish the evening back at Bert's place watching his old stunt reels. And that's about it, unless you count potential rival up-and-comer J. Michael Vincent, who's actually enough of a fan that they wind up pals and stunt partners on the film, or Robin Klein's often dead on take of the pretentious Peter Bogdanovich, who we talked about before. If you don't mm-hmm. know, don't ask. As with a lot of Reynolds films of the period, particularly the ones he did with Hal Needham, there's an odd likability about the whole thing, a lack of malice that reminds you a lot of the aforementioned Dukes of Hazzard TV series that lets all the inanity and nihilistic pointlessness of the proceedings off the hook somehow. It's not bad. It's much better than you think it would be, but it's a strange film. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, and actually... It's interesting to see. It's interesting to see someone like uh, Jan Michael Vincent looking so good and and real because even though he passed around the time Reynolds did, you know, he was virtually legless and, and and a complete mess. So there's that. There's a weird tone to this midway through when Brian Keith so, suffers a stroke. Brian Keith's character, he's like the elder statesman of stuntmen. Right. And the movie t- takes a, a bit of a turn. You know, into like really 
we went from the serial comic thing to this, all of a sudden we, we, we jumped down to this very heavy drama thing. And uh, I don't think the movie quite recaptures from that. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's, it's amiable, it's fun, fun cast, and it's another movie you don't see too often anymore. Mm-hmm. So uh, next up is Starting Over. You know, yeah. every show I try to tag in a few films that are outside the old comfort zone, you know, something that doesn't seem entirely offensive, or more often than not, something that I just know is going to be a complete piece of shit to laugh at and offset whatever good our hero du jour has done elsewhere. But once in a while, you actually find something that comes off a whole hell of a lot better than you'd ever expect it to. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's this supposed comedy from the very end of the me generation about a pair of divorcees, and one of them is our good old boy pal, Burt Reynolds. This one's one of Burt's rare attempts at a stretch film, smack dab in the middle of his shift from the 60s cowboy and detective shows to the good old boy moonshine running cop and detective films and football movies from the 70s to the 80s with an emphasis on the Clint Eastwood Bronson style, the old man cop thing, the further we go. Essentially here, he's a writer for low-rent magazines, the kind you find at an airport, and that's a quote, who's married to, of all people, Candace Bergen, who's somehow supposed to be all hot. There's a running gag about how big her tits are, and they really aren't. Any doubts? There's a long sequence late in the film where she visits the new couple on a very see-through top, and it's not all that impressive. Anyway, she's supposed to be turning into a big-time singer-songwriter, which is absurd, because not only her song's 70s pop radio maudlin, but she can't fucking sing. I mean, she's just horrible, and the script even sort of acknowledges it, which says something. So she decides that, as was happened to a lot of couples of all ages in the wake of 70s feminism, she has the right to affair and to dump her husband to pursue her career singing. Why she couldn't do that while being married is never spelled out, but you get the implications, especially since, you know, it's the 70s. Anyhow, he takes his suitcase and moves out to Boston, supported a bit by his psychologist brother and his wife, who quickly get him set up on a blind date of sorts with the mousy, a bit crazy Jill Clayburgh. Of course, there's also a scene just prior where they both get off the bus and he comes off like a stalker, so it's not exactly a big success at first, but they wind up falling for each other in short order, to the point of moving in together. But the ex-wife keeps dropping in with emotional and physical needs and dragging him off by the nose, which keeps sabotaging his new relationship. Will they figure it all out in the end? I don't know about anyone else, but I've been in this exact situation twice before. <laughs> once back in college and once before meeting my wife. Maybe it's something to do with crazy women, but there's this push-pull thing where they drive you away or break things off, but then can't stand to see you happy with somebody else. And if you're still holding the torch, it can definitely wreck things. A case in point. As stiff and weird as he was in the role, I definitely felt him here. So there's some nice bits, like the support group for divorced men who continue to get henpecked by the one for divorced women before their time's even up, the presence of Wallace Shawn of My Dinner and Andre, or the warm support Bert gets from brother Charles Durning of Dog Day Afternoon, which we talked on our Al Pacino show, and his wife Frances Sternhagen of Outland, which we talked on our Connery show, and the nerdy guy in the support group who keeps driving around and advising him against going back to the ex, since he keeps remarrying and divorcing the same woman. It's too dark to be a comedy, it's certainly not funny, but there's an undercurrent of positivity and humanity here that even questionable actor and actress choices like Bird or Bergen can't entirely dispel. To my surprise, I actually like this one. I'm glad you liked this. It's 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 uh, one of the fun things of doing a show where if you view a movie for the show and you find that, hey, this is actually quite good. I actually like the movie uh, that's the, that I wanted to talk about next. Hopefully. Sorry, if not, I'll do it. Yeah, it's just sometimes you, you just assume something's going to be cheesy, pat, and it actually is quite good. And, and you know, just surprised. You know, and, and, and the guy who you're associating, you know, we're associating Bert Reynolds this time period doing, you know, like, as you just said, you know, the coming off of one thing, going through another, and becoming very popular with this Southern Cowboy thing, um, is really good at this. Who knew? Yeah. So I liked it, too. And um, I really liked Rough Cut, and it's a Don Siegel film. Yeah, Rough, Rough Cut is, is a surprisingly really good 
kind of Don Siegel. You know, we know Don Siegel. I'm going to name Shaq just briefly. Escape from Alcatraz, Telephone, The Black Windmill, Dirty Harry, Charlie Barrick, Coogan's Bluff. We don't need any more of that, right? No. We covered him several times. We covered him several times. So this is a heist movie along the lines of the Hitchcock Cary Grant movie called To Catch a Thief. Thank you. And so Bert is is like the suave, thick mustache, porn star looking dude who's a master thief. The cast is amazing on this. It's got a Euro cast. So you got Don Siegel who's making these kind of gritty kind of things. Leslie Andano looks very sweet in this. David Niven is chief inspector. Patrick McGee, Joss Acklin. I mean, Douglas Wilmer. I mean, you you have a lot of Sue Ann Lloyd, a lot of wow. very, very familiar. I want to see this from the cast. <laughs> yeah, a lot of very familiar brick character actors that we've seen in Hammer and Throws of, of pre this time period. Now, here's the thing. David Merrick produced this film again. Again, as I, I suggested uh, a little while ago, a very big champion of Burt Reynolds, uh, probably from his theater days, and supposedly fired Don Siegel several weeks into production and used Peter Hunt to replace him. And that didn't go too well. Peter Hunt did Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Mm-hmm. This is how chaotic this movie became. They then brought in Blake Edwards to rewrite the script, which they were already <laughs> shooting. So then Reynolds persuaded Merrick to rehire Siegel, and then they did. So, can you imagine? Wow. You have a film director about a month into production. He's fired by and, – and, and David Merrick, Broadway stage producer and a bit of a fucking Nazi bastard. Big, huge fight he had with Michael Williamson, who was in John Borman's – he played Merlin in Excalibur. And Michael Williamson was on Broadway in one of uh, Merrick's uh, stage productions. And they had a huge fight backstage, and and, and Nicole Williamson knocked him out and threw him in the garbage can. <laughs> this is true. So, like, people don't take shit from him, you know? And so he fires the director, hires the director of Iron Man's Secret Service. He's off. Blake Edwards is on to rewrite the script and possibly direct, and then Reynolds, sensing a huge clusterfuck, convinces the guy to rehire the original director because we got to get this thing done. It's a weird movie. It's a very akin to, I don't know. It takes a thief, maybe. It's 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 better than you think it is, considering sometimes movies that don't have this chaotic kind of production don't work. Yeah. But, hey, you know, I thought this one was pretty good. Anthony Schaffer of Sleuth was also brought in to work on the script. So you know it's better than average. David Niven hated working on the film. Because he hated Merrick, but but apparently not, he did not hate uh, Bert. Uh, so uh, it's just very strange. Screenplay is credited to Larry Gilbert because he was the first official from Mash, the first official screenwriter. But but it was rewritten by like three or four or five people. It's really a very good, a little rough around the edges kind of heist movie, and I kind of liked it. Okay. Smoking the Bandit too. You said you didn't see. Not this time around. Now let's see the uh, Yeah, it's you know. The very successful didn't make as much of a gazillion dollars as the first one. Everybody's back for this one. It's more of the same. We have some more football players in this. You know, people. Chuck Yeager's in this. Wow. Uh, so beside Terry Bradshaw, Mean Joe Green, Mel Tillis, another country boys in this one. Uh, Statler Brothers are all in this one. We're just opening wide 
so to speak. Mm-hmm. No reference to deliverance. <laughs> Opening wide <laughs> that southern connection, and then we have the cannonball run, the yes. first one. Slightly updated Starfucker all-star comedy race in the vein of It's a Mad Mad World and those magnificent young men in their flying machines. Mm. Apparently there was a real-world analog to this unofficial cross-country race held just two years prior, but this one takes all the chase scenes that became so popular since Bullet and the Outlaw Road films from Easy Rider and Vanishing Point to Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, maybe even Mother Jokes and Speed, injects a lot of dumb comedy and some nice shiny Wilma Deering on Buck Rogers-type skin suits on the ladies, then pulls in just about every name star you never caught in a disaster film. Burt Reynolds, Roger Moore, Farrah Fawcett, Dom DeLuise, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Jack Elam, Adrian Barbeau, Terry Bradshaw, Jackie Chan, Burt Convy, Jamie Farr, Peter Fonda, Bianca Jagger, Jimmy the Greek, Mel Tillis, Johnny Yoon. I mean, it's crazy. Reynolds and DeLuise drive an ambulance. They take on scary old Western baddie Jack Elam as a doctor to fill the image, but he's only a proctologist. They also kidnap Farrah <laughs> Fawcett just because. Hard drinking and driving priests, Dean Martin and Sam Davis Jr., get a lot of cheap gags out of trying to get laid or gambling. The hot girl, Tara Buckman, and big busted Adrian Barbeau go around in a Lamborghini and getting out of tickets by flirting with the pigs who pull them over. Of course, they have to get a woman cop at one point. Jackie Chan in one of his earliest starring roles in a kit-style computerized car. Named football player Terry Bradshaw and country gimmick singer who only stopped stuttering when he sang, raced with a whole lot of beer in tow. Roger Morris himself, or supposedly a lookalike pretending to be him in a tricked-out Bond-type Aston Martin, complete with ever-changing exotically-accented female passengers, champagne flowing, and gadgets to keep followers off the trail. Jamie Farr is an OPEC chic in a Rolls Royce. There's a lot of Burke connections here, from Hal Needham to his other drinking buddies and frequent co-stars Don DeLuise, the sleazy game show host Burke Comby, who I believe is either his partner or his main rival in the sequel. I do remember that film being much akin to this one, but with a lot less star power. It was just, it's just something. and It's, <laughs> it's like, you know, I, to this day, I, I do not support that. I don't know. We've never done a D. Martin show, have we? No. I still I still support that Dean drank. A lot of people say oh, Dean yeah. didn't drink. That's bullshit. Dean, Dean didn't drink. He he liked to put up the persona that he drank. Bullshit. Dean looks split. So did Sammy. You know, Dean and Sammy. Actually, the next one has Frank too. Well, Sammy's yeah, probably coked up. <laughs> hey, you got you got like Sammy. He was on the dark side. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm hmm. So uh, <laughs> this, this cast is amazing. You will never see anything like this. I, I think at the start of the show, I, I think I kind of blurted it out there, like I read something about trying to do a remake of this. It'd uh, be impossible. A brand new one. You know how much money that would cost? It would be impossible unless unless it'd be like one of those uh, like sci-fi versions where like everybody who's in TV will be on it because we don't even know who these people are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, I've been to shows, I've been to conventions where people go, hey, look, it's so-and-so. Who's that? And I'm like, who's that? <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> what, they, what they tell me, I'm like, who's that? This had major stars. Then, now, and, you know, Dean was still coasting on the Gold Digger show. You know, that shit was still popular. Dean Martin, Celebrity Roast. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were we talking about? 19, early 1980s, people were still, hey, people are still talking about you got a collection of those Dean Martin celebrity roasts because they're hilarious. Everybody's drunk and having fun. <laughs> and you know what? If you find them on YouTube, they're funny. Yeah. Not all of them, but most of them. So anyway. But look at Match Game. Match Game's hilarious because they're all drunk and stoned. And this week yeah. goes on, it got worse. <laughs> I was getting my hair cut the other day. Shh. 
and I, there was what was that thing? Password, Alan Ludden, and it was from '67 because Dick Sean was the guest, right? So I'm sitting in the chair, I'm like, oh my god, Dick Sean has been there for so long. <laughs> and Alan Ludden says, so Dick Sean, what do you have coming up? And he goes, I'll be working with Mel Brooks. In a film where I play Hitler, um, it's called <laughs> Springtime for Hitler. I'm thinking, oh, shit, it's producers. It has to be 66. And I forgot what password. You hear this voice go, the password is Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear this? And you have these cheesy little rotating things to, like, space. Uh, don't know. Bing. Next person. I'm like, oh, these were game shows? <laughs> anyway, I took a long digression. But the Cannonball Run is a lot of fun. You won't see anything like it. Another misstep from Bert is next. That one I didn't see either. That is called Paternity. David Steinberg, another kind of popular Jewish comedian from the time. Doesn't matter if he's a comedian or not, but no, he's Jewish-centric. That's why I brought it up. He gets a director movie with very hot Beverly D'Angelo at the time. Elizabeth Ashley, Lauren Hutton. There's a lot of fun people in this. This is a serial comic thing. This is another... How do I put this? I don't know. I think the film was written uh, by a well-known screenwriter under a pseudonym. They wanted to make Bert kind of the Cary Grantish thing because a couple of pictures ago, Rough Cut, which everybody thought would be a total disaster, actually had hints of To Catch a Thief. So they said, boom, maybe this will work again if we make Bert a leading man who everybody wants him to follow their child. So... Natch, Elizabeth Ashley, Lauren Hutton, Beverly D'Angelo, everybody but surprisingly missing from also the Cannibal Run film, Sally Field. So I'm like, hey, what's up with that? But, you know, for those that think about these things too much, <laughs> it did not do too well. It's when Bert tries to do something a little different, it bites him. Yeah. For example, the, he was nominated for first Golden Raspberry for this picture. <laughs> Um, if there was there was wide across hatred for this film because people like to see Bert banging chicks and being famous. Mm -hmm. But next he rebound big time yeah. with uh, Sharky's Machine. Bert's last decent cop film and one of the few films he directs himself that doesn't suck. The other being Gator. They call this one a neo noir, but it feels more like one big Hitchcock swipe with some nasty elements pulled in from a certain Polanski throwback. We'll get there. Bert's a hard-nosed cop taking on some big-time drug dealer when his idiot partner blows it, resulting in a hostage situation on a wounded civilian. As a result, he's demoted to the Vice Squad, where he stumbles across that Trump-Epstein-level white slavery ring with ties to state politics. Gee, I wonder what that would be like if, say, the United States president were beholden the powers both foreign and domestic underworld through prostitution and blackmail. Oh, wait, it's already happening. 47% of the nation could care less. So much for this film. Anyway, back when people still had brains and limits you couldn't push beyond at the risk of your career, we had Bert pulling the sort of rear window vertigo thing, managing to fall for a high-priced hooker he's never even met, simply through daily surveillance and peeping. There's a weird bit where she gets blown away, then turns up at his doorstep, but it's a bait-and-switch, and things progress from rear window to vertigo to Chinatown before the end credits roll. There's a lot of big names in this one, from crusty old Charles Durning and Brian Keith to Bernie Casey, Henry Silva, Vittorio Gassman, Elisha Cook Jr., and oversmoked Aussie Rachel Ward as Burt's Bizarre Love Triangle. 
it's a pretty good showing for Bird of this era, but compared to what Brian De Palma and Ken Russell were doing with very similar material around this time, much less the classic neo-noirs of the 70s, many of which we discussed in previous shows on Russell, Connery, Sutherland, Rampling, Gould, and others. And against that company, this film does fall far short. But take it for what it is and whatever it falls in Burt's career, the films he was doing around this time and what he wound up devolving into later in the decade, and again, against a handful of other films he both directed and starred in, Sharky's Machine looks a whole lot better than you'd expect. I still do like it a lot. No, I like it a lot, too. It's got a great soundtrack, too. Really just cementing that uh, noir kind of connection there. We got, like, uh, Chet Baker, Manhattan Transfer, Doc Severinsen, uh, Julie London, Peggy Lee. Eddie Harris did a brand-new theme for the film. So, I mean, really nice kind of jazzy. It's got a really jazzy vibe. Mm-hmm. It's almost like uh, it would be a good companion with... Uh, Tarantino's Jackie Brown, I would say. You know, it's a it's a good, nice movie. Great cast. Um, yeah, it's it's that near noir feeling, but it's also got a little bit of something in it. It did really well. It, it definitely did connect with the with the Eastwood people because mm-hmm. even back he's still around directing, but even back then, you know, the Dirty Harry persona is starting to erode a little bit. So we're thinking, hey, you know, what about Bert? This is not doing too bad. But then he's stuck in a rut with Six Pack. Yeah, Six Pack, he's barely in it. He's apparently just man walking in front of Brewster and Lila uncredited. Six Pack actually has the ignominy of being the last film ever showed in a drive in in our area. It's a Kenny Rogers movie where he had a bunch of kids. I don't know. This is around the time of the Bad News Bears, so you get the idea. And all this heartwarming bullshit they're trying to pull off. Probably he's like a single father or something. I think he's on a race car circuit, too. I don't know. No, no, let's go to the best little whorehouse. Best little whorehouse in Texas. The guy behind 9 to 5 got dragged along with his star Dolly Parton to this questionable film musical of the era, which puts the ridiculously rocked Tennessee tart of a country singer into one of the <laughs> cheesiest musical scenarios this side of Mamma Mia. Dolly's the madam of a famed local whorehouse that's become something of an institution. Everyone brings their teams down there to celebrate, be it military football or whatever. It's well known. Bert's the local sheriff who's had a thing going for her and therefore lays off on busting the place. Jim Neighbors, who must have been in his glory doing a musical, Q. Richard Simmons singing along the Babs or some shit, is his coolest deputy, always doing the Gomer Pyle shtick. So what's the big conflict of this happy little scenario? VD? Nah. Dom DeLuise turns up, some do-gooder conservative type doing an investigative report for TV, and surprise, he wants the whorehouse shut down, getting the governor and the old bag brigade on his side. In the end, Bert is forced to close the place down, but asks his favorite whore to marry him. <laughs> I wonder how many diseases they'll share, but she doesn't want to ruin his chances to run for governor or some shit. Like this incident didn't already paint a bad picture to the gen pop, but it's a bad musical, so apparently they do get married and he does become governor. Yay? Bert's a better singer than Slice Alone was in Rhinestone, much less John Travolta in Greece or Pierce Brosnan in Mamma Mia, so I guess there's that. Yeah, I agree. Actually, surprisingly, well, you know, this is the thing I said before, that, that Bert did a lot of singing on Broadway, you know, Broadway in summer stock. So although on the surface it sounds like a big joke, this guy probably has more history singing, you know, especially if he's singing six, seven days a week, uh, maybe eight days with the matinees. Than, than you or I, <laughs> even as backup, you know, so there's that. So, like, that's a big surprise. Yeah, he's, he's serviceable, maybe a little more than that. Dolly Parton was very popular back then. He, Bert's still buddies with Dom DeLuise, Charles Derninger. I can see Jim Neighbors was the big surprise in this. I'm like, wow, where did they reach into the hat for that? <laughs> I mean, because Jim can sing. There's no... Oh, yeah, he, my grandma had one of his records, Mel Lamont yeah. or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very big baritone. It's just uh, Jim Neighbors. 
Uh, what do we know about? Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, what do we know about Jim now? You know, <laughs> the one thing about Jim Neighbors singing, I recall, is that he always sort of sounds like Gilmer Pyle. He's got that tone. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, he does have a big voice. It, it, yeah, it did not do too well, uh, obviously. Well, it's like, so who wanted to see a musical with Burt Reynolds? You know, it's like we're we're playing to this group. This no, uh, what I'm actually want to say is we're playing to this. Uh, what was the Southern Driving audience? The good old boys first, and then he started moving towards this Dirty Harry audience. And where the hell these right. musicals keep popping up from? Nobody wanted to see them. I think he really wanted to do them. Well, yeah, but. I- Except, except, and then this one was maybe maybe geared toward them, you know. But then it's sort of like this was probably. I think this was popular on Broadway, or, or it was. Broadway. It was. And and I I think they thought that this would appeal to that crowd. Since it was know, country, this, right to the smoking the bandit crowd. But they didn't want to see this. <laughs> and he and he does it again with best friends. We're back to this Truffaut thing. This is Norman Jewis, another heavy-handed uh, director. So Bert and Goldie Hawn. Play Hollywood screenwriters, you know, which this is this could have been one of those those Broadway uh oh, you just name checked it a little while ago. Very of its time thing. We even have a Broadway centric cast. We have Jessica Tandy, Bernard Hughes, I mean all these people appearing on stage. I Okay. Bert and Goldie are Hollywood screenwriters who've been working so long, but then they haven't been together. They're just together, but he wants to get married, but they're not married. You know, you get my drift? But then they're working on a big Hollywood movie all of a sudden, and then there are outside influences, should we say. And then there are people in the orbit say, you guys don't need to get married because you're already considered married because you've been together. You know, it's that kind of like heavy-handed Woody Allen-esque kind of movie, yeah. which you wouldn't expect someone like Burt Reynolds to be in. Very strange. Valerie Curtin. Remember her from Saturday Night Live? Saturday? Yeah, she she wrote this thing. <laughs> with, with, yeah, I know, right? So she she and her husband, Barry Levinson, yes, that Barry Levinson, met on Injustice for All, another film they co-wrote the script for. Who knew, right? So that was their own kind of real-life experiences, and so I guess that Bert came along and said, this is my chance. He, I guess he kept wanting to reinvent himself as an actor that nobody took took seriously. Yeah. And, and no, I said that incorrectly. I think he kept wanting to reinvent himself as an actor that people would take seriously. But nobody did. But nobody did because he worked so hard to get to where he's at now. True. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yes, I think I, I said it right the second time, right? Yes. And, 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 and I think that was the thing that really egged him on. He would make these big pictures. He would make these until City Heat happened. So uh, next up is Stroker Ace. So apparently mm-hmm. Burt was offered a role in that awful Terms of Endearment, which went on to be the Oscar winner that year. But he opted to stay in more familiar waters for this goofy, good old boy comedy set in the world of... Okay, so you know about Southern car culture, right? Any episode of Dukes of Hazard visit to a down-home flea market or a monster truck valley demolition derby should cement the truth of this into anyone's head. So how do we appeal to that crowd... Besides showing up them Yankee City Slickers, run shine, that's it. We'll set a film in NASCAR country. So here, Bert's the son of a shine runner, grown into a top-draw NASCAR frontrunner. He's got a thing going with all the trophy girls that haunt the circuit, but having trouble keeping a sponsor, possibly because he won't take their shit and he's a big practical joker. He's shown with one particularly obnoxious micromanager type, literally cementing him into the sponsored car, always walking away laughing. He's got a big rival in Hardy Boy and future Isaac Asimov mystery series star Parker Stevenson, remember Probe, who's psycho enough to ram his car at high speeds, which does occasionally send Bert careening into the wall and out of the race. 
He's also got a nine for the Tammy Faye Baker of 86 symbols, Lonnie Anderson. I'm sorry, I never saw the appeal there. Which lands him in uncomfortable waters as the driver for Ned Beatty's Chicken Pit, where he has to dress in a chicken suit and call for Ed's just to sidle his way into Anderson's pants. Of course, not only does he wind up in random bar fights and such over this embarrassing new role, his car actually reads fastest chicken in the South, but she turns out to be some religious virgin besides, foiling plans to get her drunk and leading to a lot of camaraderie with everyone's favorite closet case gym neighbors doing his full-on dumb Gomer Pyle shtick as Bert's head mechanic. Will Bert get out of his chicken contract? Will our balding hero continue to beat his big rival in his room with huge pecker? And most importantly, will Bert fuck Lonnie and screen as well as off? Yeah, it's got plenty of the old Reynolds charm of the era, and it's certainly a harmless enough comedy entertainment, but you can see why, as Bert says, this is where I lost my audience. The plot is so thin and slight, you'd think it were one episode of a weekly half-hour sitcom, which also speaks to just how safe this all feels. Should it have spelled the end of his stardom and consigned him to a few darker cop roles and eventually oblivion and television guest spot help? Well, it's not that bad, but you always have to flip that and ask yourself, is it any good? Well, surprisingly enough, it has all the ingredients uh, to appeal to the audience we've been talking about quite often uh, this whole show. And yet, and yet, the budget was bigger than the box office. Yeah. So something turned some people off. You got NASCAR, you got Lonnie Anderson, who you disliked uh, from your tone, but uh, you would say no. And so, uh, <laughs> me personally, yeah, she's, I can't take that. She's very much Tammy Faye Baker to me. I would do her too. So, uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. So, <laughs> with, with, yeah, so there's that. But I don't know what happened here. Just, just <clears throat> the movie until. <laughs> Got the real bomb there. Whoa, okay. <laughs> this so, movie uh, would appeal to no one. And this is the start of a downhill trend. So, Smoking the Bandit Part 3. So, it's directed by Dick Lowry. I know. Who? So, Dick Lowry is a guy who pretty much works on TV. And he did episodes of ALF, I kid you not, and a lot of Kenny Rogers shows. And this seems to be one of his very few feature films. Okay, we got this. So, Bert's kind of slipping a little bit with the box office. So, we will bring back, we bring back uh, Jackie, Jerry Reed... Bert has a lesser role in this film. It's mainly Jackie's movie for some reason. Jackie and Jerry Reed's film. And Paul Williams is back, Mike Henry. But the thing is, it just seems a little off. How do you make a smoking and abandoned movie without Bert Reynolds? He appeals he appears in this almost as like an afterthought. Like he he lended a hand to the movie. I think people felt cheated when they saw it. They're like, he's actually not in this film, is he? And so yeah, his character is the real bandit. It's like a little more than a cameo. Another one where the budget, $9 million, was more than the box office. Remember the first one made $300 million? Mm-hmm. People went in there, where's Burt Reynolds? Yeah. That's kind so, of what I remember uh, about the film from way back when. I was like, why should you watch this? <laughs> yeah. And then he did it again with The Man Who Loved Women. It's a Blake Edwards film. A little better, a surprisingly really good role for him, but it's not what people wanted to see. Uh, it's one of Blake Edwards's, you know, Blake Edwards uh, did, had this period. We did SOB, 10, these really... Victor Victoria? <laughs> yeah, these really deep thought relation, man-woman relationship films going hardcore into the psyche of a relationship. So Reynolds plays a sculptor who is handsome. What is Burt Reynolds looking like? No, insatiable sexual appetite. But he's really in love with Julie Andrews. She's playing someone else. But he's like, how do I show her I really love her when I'm 
in love with every other woman. Every other woman's in love with me. It's almost like it was a metaphor. I think Blake Edwards tapped into this is a metaphor for somebody who looks like, acts like, and is Burt Reynolds, but he's seeking someone else. You know what I'm saying? And so the someone else was Julie Andrews. (laughs) Just like a picture of (laughs) Victoria. Like, Which I never got because once once I, I saw a video of and photographs of Blake Edwards, I always thought he was gay, and then Julie was, Julie was a trophy wife. You know, yeah, this is what I came up with. Um, well, she is kind of manly looking, so it could be like Julie's closeted. Uh, I won't go there yet. I don't want to disturb people's childhoods. We had a relative who married in that was you know, like ostensibly an uncle, and he married an aunt of mine who my father always said. She looks like a boy. She wears her hair like a boy. She's like straight up and down. This guy must be a closet case. And we all kind of wondered that for years. <laughs> so maybe it was the same thing there. It could have been. Um, Kim Basinger, Mary Lou Henner, who was big on TV at the time. Uh, Celia Ward, who was in the first uh, Hellboy. Denise Crosby. I'm not going there. <laughs> and so others are in this. It was sort of like a turnabout on 10. You know, and it, it did not do well. Again, a film that disappointed Reynolds fans. But I think in retrospect, a lot of people wind up liking it more as time goes by because it. Blake Edwards apparently based this on a Truffaut film. Yes. It's true. The Man Who Loved Women. It was a Truffaut film from 77. Yeah, I saw that Just, one. Yeah, we made three years, uh, four years later as this. Bad mistake. So, Cannibal Run 2. We got to do it. We got to get the fans back. This did well. Surprisingly, Hal Needham is back, and just about everybody else on Earth, including, if we can add, Doug McClure is here now. Artie Johnson from Lampin. Sinat- this is the one where Sinatra joined the other Rat Pack guys. Um, Babe, Abe Vakota. <laughs> Michael B. Gazzo, you know that voice. And, and Jackie Lamb's back. Mel Tillis, the good old boys. Tom Conway and Don Knotts are both there. Jackie Chan is back, of course. Catherine Bach. Who is missing, you say? Well, I'll tell you right now. Sally Field is nowhere to be seen in this thing. And, uh... Farrah? No, it's... No Farrah either. It's it, There's a big gap in that whole thing. So our nearest is Mary Lou Henner, Susan Anton, and Catherine Box. So obviously this is around the period where, I don't know, maybe he's just going off the rails. But this did very well. This was like a Burt Saver. Also it was co-produced by the Chinese. <gasps> Really. It <laughs> yes, is, yeah. It's true. And so I think it was the 20, or was it Golden Harvest? Golden Harvest, yeah. So it did twenty two million dollar budget, so it made two and a half that. So not bad considering his last few films have been losing money. So it's definitely it was definitely a step up for Bert and So City Heat was yes. next. In nineteen seventy eight this would have sounded like a hit. Blake yeah. Edwards writes, Richard Benjamin directs Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood co-star Madeline Kahn in names of the era like Fight for Your Life's William Sanderson, Richard Roundtree, and Rip Torn. Plus, they set this in a 40s neo-noir sort of thing. Pretty hot at the time, Robert Mitchum made a comeback doing this stuff. Elliot Gould and Alaska Goodbye, Chinatown, all this stuff just spells hit at that time. The problem is, it didn't come about until 1984. They tag in a few contemporary stars like Robert Davi and Irene Cara, but they don't fit. And neither does the tough guy versus new man retro clowning in the decade of Dayglow, two-fisted hypermuscular action stars, and heavy metal. It was an anachronism doomed from the get-go. 
Plus, if you're going to make Bert the Fall Guy character, I mean, look, he's done that well before and everything from Gator to Cannonball Run. He could take a hit, get the laugh, and come up swinging with a joke. It's his thing. But a sickly-looking Bert and a bored-looking monosyllabic Clint Eastwood cast against him, much less in a film that leavens his humor with some unexpected, almost realistic violence? Apparently, this is why Bert looks so emaciated. On the very first fight scene filmed, Bert got his jaw broken by a chair, and they had him on a liquid diet the whole time, so he ended up looking pretty sick. I tried, but nah, I couldn't even get through this one. And I like Richard Benjamin. Maybe he should have taken the Burt role or something. I don't know. I doubt this one could have been saved, though. Yeah, he had his jaw broken, and then he had his, he had a severe back injury. So he had two injuries on the Spectre, which while he was out for R&R, he lost so much weight when he came back, he just looked terrible. But this also started his addiction to painkillers, but which affected him physically. You know what's weird about this movie? This is one of the few films that Eastwood has the, the more better comic lines. I mean, like, yeah, it's it's almost like, wow, he's coming off with some of the better comic dialogue. Richard Benjamin, surprisingly enough, actually is a decent film director. And, you know, another guy with a huge theatrical career. Uh, I always liked him in Westworld, too. So as an actor, you know, he's on-off, on-off, early uh, Richard Dreyfuss, Duddy Kravitz kind of thing, but he really taps in better than most people to that, that schism, you know, of that time period. Yeah, I think he's more like an Elliot Gould, but not as dark. Yeah, and more but not likeable. as dark. Yeah, more likable. Yeah, more likable than Elliot. Although Elliot seemed to have... Elliot had more range. Yeah. So, yeah, this was a mess of a film. Uh, it took a long time. A lot of people stepped in to try to help it. Yeah, I don't know what happened here, but we know that that Reynolds was off the grid for like two years while he was working on this. He was trying to finish another picture of oh, Stick. Yeah. Bert's a car thief who just got out of the clink. He literally brums his way across the country, riding the rails, to meet some Latino pals who put him up for a bit. Unfortunately, one of them is Charles Durning of Dog Day Afternoon in some truly offered fat bastard makeup, complete with fat suit, bushy eyebrows, and crazy hair, who sends him out for a big drug deal where things go very, very wrong. Now on the run, he finagles his way into work as a chauffeur for George Siegel of Alan the Pussycat, Roller Coaster, and Who's Killing the Greatest Chefs of Europe, a rich schmuck who seems to have a thing for ex-cons. Meantime, Durning's boss puts hits on both him and Bert, and Bert gets involved with scary old Candace Bergen again. It gets convoluted. In the end, Bert gets revenge. The trick with a lot of Burt Reynolds' 80s cop movies is he's not really the type. I mean, he may have been a grumpy prick at this point in real life, but on film, he's always sort of good-humored and likable. So trying to pull a po-faced, dirty, hairy Charlie Bronson thing, it never really seems to work for him. There's always this conflict. Is he mean and scary? Or is he the jokey good old boy who can handle himself in a bar fight, comes out swinging only after making a crack to his buddies? Strangely enough, it's directed by Burt himself, proving that even he was clueless as to the extent and aspects of his appeal to film audiences. Well, you, and that might have been the that might have been the case. You know, you might hit the nail on the head. You know, maybe he didn't want to be the good old boy, apparently to just as the the South and the Midwest, uh, which is indicative of the films he's he's been making outside of that. You know, musicals, uh, Truffaut remakes. <laughs> Come on, right? Yeah. Blake Edwards, Blake Edwards love stories. Come on, you know, it's relationship dramas you, you know but you gotta give the guy a lot of cred for wanting to do that when you when you're the number one box office star i really do and 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 stick you know i i think stick is not as bad as some people say um it's certainly no sharky's machine but it's 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 watchable it's watchable and it's better than you think it might be so we did some other stuff then uh uphill of the way heat shattered he's on an episode of the golden girls he does something called Malone. I wasn't able to see that one, but I saw the trailer, 
and it looks like a late '80s TV movie, like Matlock or something. Bert looks old. Well, I, I I'll jump in there. Malone is okay. Malone is uh, is not bad. It's directed by Harley Cockless. Uh, Lauren Hutton's in it, and they definitely have had a connection before. Yeah. And they and they have a screen thing going on there. Scott Wilson's in this. A couple other familiar faces. It's one of the lesser pictures. Uh, he is actually probably one of the, if you could say, one of the last really good ones. Karen Young is in this. Peter McNichol, Howard Hessman. Um, there's something really off about this movie, yeah. and I can't figure out why uh, on, on Heat. That it's it's not as good as it could be, but he's definitely tone, toning up that dirty carry persona. But he also looks like he's pained a lot, which like to rent a rent a cop, which nearly killed him. Oh yeah, because <laughs> so I was gonna say with with Malone, it was like the production looks cheap, doesn't even feel like a film proper from what I saw in the trailer. I mean, did it even get a theatrical? Yeah, it did. Wow. And so so rent a cop is somebody's idea of yeah, let's let's Burt Rounds and Liza Minnelli. Everybody wants to see that. <laughs> Okay, so Lysa's playing a, uh, a prostitute. Bert's playing a disgraced police officer. Okay, so it, it, this is a movie where the supporting cast is actually more interesting than the lead. <laughs> Who's in this? Why is Lewis say this? We have James Remar, Bernie Casey, John P. Ryan, and Michael Rooker, a young Michael Rooker. Wow, right? Yeah. You just know this movie's screaming, this has got to be interesting, but it's not. <laughs> And so this is like Liza at the, like, my nose is so big, full of blow, period. <laughs> and and maybe Bert's doing that, too, to, to, to get away with his back pain. <laughs> Unfortunately, for our former former King of the Hill, Golden Raspberry Award, Worst Actor and Worst Actress. Ouch. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it the film a knockoff yeah. of, like, uh, The Bodyguard before The Bodyguard came about? Could be. No, I think The Bodyguard may have been uh, before this, around the same time. Uh, it's just bad, bad. Uh, it's just, you know, Liza Minnelli's not a bad actress, but uh, they had a history where they, they did a really bad movie, Lucky Lady. Mm-hmm. So why why regroup? This was just a really bad idea. And, uh, I mean, and then he, he would just follow up with bad ideas after bad ideas after bad ideas. Pre-accident Christopher Reeve and Kathleen Turner, they're doing a remake of The Front Page. You know how good an idea that would have been. And I was called Switching Channels, and, and nobody wanted to see that. You know, Bert seems adamant about doing this kind of thing. Physical Evidence in 1989. Mm. The last film directed by paranoid author Michael Crichton, who gave us the likes of Westworld, Coma, The Great Train Robbery, which we talk about in our Sean Connery and Donald Sutherland shows, Looker, and the Gene Simmons, Tom Selleck, Time Cop knockoff, Runaway. This one waltzes definitely between the very 80s craze for the courtroom drama, which brought everything from TV's L.A. Law to crap like Legal's Eagles and A Few Good Men, and the grittier 70s cop film. A botched bridge jumper suicide instead discovers a dead blackmailer. All evidence seems to point to a drunken ex-cop Burt Reynolds, who gets assigned rookie public defender Teresa Russell. She spends a lot of the film facing off a grizzled old play-the-game insider-type Ned Beatty while dealing with an increasingly irrational and probably homosexual boyfriend married with children's Jefferson himself, Ted McGinley. Along the way, she becomes increasingly sure that Bert is guilty, especially given his military training and the very method of murder used, and his relationship with another suspect, Headhunter's Kay Lenz. It all gets pretty convoluted before things wrap up. I always liked this movie, though it may have a lot more to do with the distaff casting than any intrinsic merits thereof. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of twists and turns you may well have a tough time figuring out who really did what here, but for me, it was always about two of my favorite ladies of the era, the smoky-eyed Kay Lenz, and especially the simmering Teresa Russell. The problem, therefore, is this. 
Russell's known for his exasperated, barely bottled emotion, which explodes into paroxysms of sighing and breathless line delivery, and a whole lot of naturalistic physicality. Nobody does a truly realistic sensuality without the usual, this is how sexy should look bullshit. I mean, real deal passion and emotion like Russell does. I mean, you can certainly accuse her of overdoing it, like too much immersion in the method, too much tension bottled up in a certain predictability, but damn, if there was ever an American Bardot, Russell was it, for those who get what I'm trying to say here. So why in hell would you cast this fount of not-a-hippie-ass, all-natural-type bursting with sensuality and emotion as a prim, uptight counselor under the direction of a nice, scientifically icy director? And even for the Burt fans, where's his usual charm, his easy laughter, his sheer joy in starting a bar fight or what have you? It's all tamped down to whistle of smoke. Even their big scene together when you're sure they're finally going to give in to all the supposed character tension and screw? It's just ice and miscues on one side or the other. Nothing comes of it. There is zero sex in this film. Even so, it's still more than watchable, particularly among courtroom dramas. It isn't a bad mystery either. And paired as it is with the far superior and similarly I Can't Even Deck Seamus on the DVD that I have, it's an easy choice to pick up on the cheap. You'll probably like it. Yeah, my, I mean, much better than you would think for late period uh, Reynolds picture. And, I mean, summation, yeah. It's just, it's just much better than you would think. He's just he's just trying to make a living, trying to stay. You know, he's in striptease, playing a congressman. Striptease being the uh, Demi, Demi Moore picture, which actually was very popular. Uh, but he was in Cop and a Half in 1993. Everyone of a certain age remembers Happy Days in the Fonts, right? He was really cool, yeah. this faux 50s JD with his leather jacket and smokes rolled up his T-shirt sleeves, some funky dance moves, and a mirror. Hey, sit on it could intimidate even the biggest thugs in the local burger joint restroom. Well, if you didn't already know he was gay by 1993, this would have been the tip-off. Henry Winkler directs this ridiculous family comedy come buddy cop film <laughs> centering around this annoyingly precocious little two foot seven black kid. Yes, Webster was a thing around his time, who's living with his grandma and getting hustled by grammar school bullies three times his size for his lunch money. The only good scene in the entire movie is when they give our hero a swirly in the closest stall. So this bored little loser goes around on his bike and plays at being a cop based on obsessive viewings of Miami Vice. Best part in He's clearly all about stubs, because you never see Don Johnson, just Philip Michael Thomas. It reminds me of an old health class film strip that made us watch in school, where they try to be multicultural by having a black kid and a white kid on their bikes. They both get hit by the same car, which happens to be driven by one white guy and one black guy, and they each go to their own kind to see if the kids are okay. Couldn't they at least pretend? <laughs> anyway, on one of his nighttime excursions, he follows this loser of a baddie who thinks he's a 50s crooner to some warehouse drug deal where they kill somebody. So now he's under witness protection, which, through the magic of bad Hollywood film making means he winds up as partner to washed up psycho cop Burt Reynolds but being Burt he can't quite pull off the Dirty Harry thing much as the Charlie Bronson one and being an ostensible comedy the worst he does is drive through a bunch of suburban backyards taking down fences and wash lines in pursuit most of the time he's just pissing and moaning about having to take this kid around with him everywhere and getting beat up by bikers Eventually, all the kids wind up gaining respect for the kid when he finally stands up to the bullies, a good lesson I confirmed from my own grammar school experience, how fast that shit stops when you fight back, and wind up throwing Twinkies in slow motion at the mobsters when they make up their 19th kidnapping attempt. Wow, is this bad. I mean, you could see this as a far less annoying kindergarten cop or sidekicks, which we laughed at in our Schwarzenegger and Chuck Norris shows, or a far less amusing Stop My Mom Will Shoot, which we shared some shits and giggles about in a Stallone show. But this fact is what's being sent up here is 80's Burt, which was a borrowed role in the first place and they're releasing the film. If this were Clint Eastwood setting up Dirty Harry or Bronson setting up all his canon work, it may have worked better, but Burt always felt shoehorned into the whole tough cop thing, like, you know, jokey down-home stuff doesn't fly anymore. What the hell can we do for you? I bet that stupid kid got more swirlies than ever after this failed shot at making him a star. <laughs> so, any comment on that one? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't, yeah. unfortunately. 
But yeah, after that strip tease, like you mentioned, he shows about a couple TV series like Sybil, Larry Sanders, Evening Shade. Oh, and Boogie Nights, though, which I mentioned on the outside. Yes. And that's basically it. Well, Boogie Nights is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, the guy who's really good, interesting filmmaker. He makes really long movies. This was his 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 whole thing about the uh, golden age of porn, right? You have Mark Wahlberg playing uh, ostensibly uh, John Holmes and and uh, Don Cheadle and John C. Riley. I mean, it was well cast, surprisingly. So Bert was playing... We have to think a, a combination of uh, uh, of Spinelli and someone else, and uh, he was really good. Bert's playing a porno film director, you know, but a, a guy who who's really more talented than you would think. You know? mm-hmm. he, he won many Best Supporting Actor awards up to the Oscars, where he was nominated, but he did not win that. As I said earlier, this is probably one of his finest, different late period roles it's different but he's always wanting to do different things uh but it's not a film he said he liked and i don't know i'm not even gonna go there longest yard remake with adam sandler bert is in there uh, and chris rock bert is in there uh playing a a, a supporting role to f- to a remake of a film which was quite good for him and he had a major role lots of small things unfortunately i have to say you bell you bowl film in the name of the king where burt reynolds played a a, a king for terrible film if you ever want to do a bowl show i'm all up for it <laughs> no no i don't i don't it's amazing how many good good people work work for oh, him yeah. well you know, he used to get uh, funny like this, yeah jason statham ron perlman john rice davies christina logan uh uh, it's just amazing. Ray Liotta. What are you doing? <laughs> so, so at some point in time, we, we stopped paying attention to Bert. Yes. And I hadn't seen him for a few years. Suddenly, he's looking much older than than his 82 years. And Adam Rifkin, who a uh, filmmaker who was known for uh, The Dark Backward, a couple of oddball film, films. He was a, mo- a writer on Mouse Hunt, which I really enjoyed. Detroit Rock City, he did. So he's kind of like a sort of weird kind of on-the-fringe filmmaker. So he convinced Burt to essentially play himself, but an actor named Vic Edwards, aging movie star invited by a local film festival. Actually, it turns out to be a bunch of geeks at a small con that takes place in a large bar. And he's assigned this guy who takes him around for, like, the weekend. And Burt looks terrible, but they, there's lots of nice clips of of films throughout his career and Bert gets to reminisce on sort of a uh, naturalistic way what happened to his career and the mistakes he made so it's a nice film to go out on um he passed away uh, a year or so later again looking much much older uh, there were two post- posthumous posthumous releases and he's lent his voice to video games grand theft auto who knew and Archer, some episodes of Archer, and uh, he was on odd things like Burn Notice, My Name is Earl, he was on the X-Files. You know, Burt did strange stuff sometimes, but yes, he he, he passed on, um, hold on. three years ago, I think. September 2018, at age 82, looking about 20 years older than his age, he's still suffering from the pain of the various things. Um, who did he marry? 
you know, we talked about women during his life. Judy Carn from Laughing, well, most famously from Laughing, 63 to 65. Blondie Anderson, he actually married her. 88 to 94. Dinah Shore, no free thing going on there. 71 to 75. And he did marry Sally Field. Really? 76 to 80. And so that might explain why Sally is missing from the last couple of Smoking the Bennett films. Mm-hmm. So... A man for all seasons, a man who actually had visions of wanting to step outside. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Burt Reynolds. Yeah, like I said, you know, if you get beyond his later years and how he's kind of like a flawed character at best and a, a difficult person to deal with from my understanding, uh, from all accounts with people, anecdotally, but also in Hollywood from what I've read and heard. But if you look at his earlier career when he was still on top, the guy did some really good stuff. He's definitely a likable character. He remembered the people that did good for him or they were friends with him, and he brought them along with him, and they shored each other up, and he had a run of really surprisingly decent and enjoyable movies. You know, hats off to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not too many people were the number one box office star in the world for almost ten years. So you got Got hats off to that, you know, worldwide. Exactly. And and I guess when you get to a certain, you know, when you when you, I guess, uh, you know, you spent your years supporting character actor, supporting actor on stage, singing uh, chorus or singing lead roles, and then you you you're doing TV, and then you're doing an action movie, you're doing a western, and then so boom, you're a star, and then that. That last and that rises and that rises and it reaches a crescendo. And then you're like, hey, I want to do something different. And, you know, but it also shows how people, the audience doesn't accept that. Yeah, you, you get know? typecast. You get, you know, they, they won't go see you doing things like that. You think, well, my, my, four, my $4 million picture made $300 million. I can do anything I want. No, they won't go, you know, even if it does have Dolly part. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, there was a great show on Burt Reynolds, and uh, please stay tuned for the next show. I'm not sure what we're going to do next time. I think we discussed Robert Mitchum as a possibility. You threw some good ideas out there earlier, too. So Thank you. All right, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our rather lengthy chat on Burt Reynolds. Well, yeah. Next time around, we'll see what we're going to talk about. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker musician, you'd like to join us in there, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, or you can follow the show directly at thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. The way to find us is just look for Third Eye Cinema slash weirdscenes inside the Gold Mine Podcast, but otherwise, the actual address is ID 553. 402044 Ritzy's Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and approved Third Eye Cinema Ritzy's Network now on Podbean. Well, thanks, thanks for joining
doing today? Uh, better than I have been the last few days. I think oh, it's getting good. better. Yeah, I hear you have some allergies. Yeah, I usually do this time of the year. Well, usually they start in April, but since it's now April, I guess, <laughs> at this <laughs> weather, uh, we're looking at 70 Monday or Tuesday. It's like, Jeez. wow. Coronavirus, scary thing, huh? Yeah, lucky you didn't get on that cruise ship. You don't have to. So, this guy that works in my team at the open space Uh job was working there Tuesday. I was working from home, and and he emails my manager saying, Oh, I just got a phone call, the email from the uh, synagogue that I go to that somebody's uh, positive, but I'll be there tomorrow. And she's like, blah, 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 and emails, emails, the shitstorm of stuff. So she calls me around 7.30 at night, and she told me. And I told him, you know, regardless, you can't come to work. You know? Of course not. So I called the uh, another office person says, so are they cleaning this? And they they sort of didn't tell certain people. Okay. And then my friend in IT freaked out because she told him, and I talked to him. He's he's a diabetic. He's got some issues, and he was really freaking out because, oh, I was working with this guy all day. I'm so shit. So I went in early. I cleaned, like, my desk again, like, you know, like, doing with this stuff. And, right. You know, doorknobs and stuff. And... <sighs> So you're sitting there, and now the office people didn't come in that new, and my friend from IT didn't come in. So people come to work, and you can't say anything, because, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll kick you out, you know? Right. You know, that's, that's how big law firms are. So about the middle of the day, they sent an email saying that somebody, they're not sick, but as a precaution, they're not allowed to come back to work for a while, and we're going to clean tonight. Now, they knew the, the date before. Yeah. They should clean immediately. So once they sent that email, everybody's going ape shit. Yeah. Understandably. Yeah. So now everybody who sneezes, like everybody's going, it's allergy season. I got a cold. You know, <laughs> and every time somebody sneezes, everybody's like, hey, you know, it's, it's going to be like a Salem winch hunt. They're going to start fucking like beating people up for coughing. That's true. <laughs> when the duckings begin, you know what happened. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, uh, so I was talking to my friend last night, we went out, I actually was really hungry, and he, he goes to nice places, I don't know, we ended up in a fucking seedy part of Jersey City in this dive bar, uh, one really cool black dude that was, like, into, uh, sports, and, uh, some big butch white girl was into mm-hmm. sports, and my buddy loves that, because he's a sports head, and I'm like, oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, the uh, bartender, white dude, and uh, a, an older Spanish couple, and that was it. And he goes, oh, yeah, I make burgers. if They were terrible. I'm like, oh, man, I really felt like real food, but oh, well. Right. So I was talking to my friend. He's going on the cruise. And I said, so what are you going to do? He says his parents don't want him to go. You know? Yeah. He's, yeah, he's 50-plus, but you know, his parents said, no, we prefer you not to go. And he says, well... You know, there's the flight, there's the hotel, because you go in the, he's going down the day before, and then he was not sure. Now, I said, well, okay, there's still time, but look at it this way, because it's probably about 30 days away. Yeah, you can cancel all that shit, sure. I said, you know, the guys, yes, most of them are 70-plus. You yep. know, Steve Howe and, and uh, the drummer. And I said, the guys from a lot of these other bands, you know, Claudio Simonetti, they're not young either, and, you know, 
you're either going to see people pull out or you're going to see the crews make a big statement. Because every time you turn around now, there's another poor cruise ship, and I feel really bad for those people stuck on the ship. Yep, true. Uh, even if they stay in their cabins, they got to eat. And They're canceling things left and right. They're canceling outdoor events. They're canceling even stupid stuff like comic shows or whatever, anything where people can get together. People are backing out. People are canceling, and the entire events are closing down. So I don't see why you would even think about it right now. Right, and 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 uh, you know, I, I being how we overreacted to something that I didn't say. I'm not, you know, I'm avoiding chiller. Yeah. Posts, you know, I, I like them. I, you know, I share them, but uh, don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be in a group of a lot of people. Yeah. I, I'm a little scared. I'll tell you the truth. You know, should be. When, when, you're, when you're when you're in a group of a lot of people, you don't know, because the problem is they don't know. Exactly, and it only takes one. Yeah. Um. So I don't know what he's gonna do. It all depends if he gets he being you know who yeah. gets sudden cancellations from his guests, right? Or mass cancellations uh, at the hotel from the people attending a show or people who want their money back. Well, some people are you probably know, waiting to see. Okay, it's still some time off. Are they going to fix this thing, or is it going to keep hanging in there? But, you know, with Trump, <laughs> it'll probably get worse and worse. <laughs> yeah, and we'll see what the warm weather does. I don't know. These yeah. things don't tend to breed well in the warm weather, which is interesting, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, Trump, scary. yeah. Uh, yeah, I... This happened before. Where is all... He has such huge support, Bernie... And they don't go out and vote. What is wrong with them? I don't understand that. That's the biggest thing that, you know, forget about all the other stuff that's been happening. I'm sure you've been following some of the back and forth I've had with actually like Democrat insiders who are giving some cogent arguments as to why they were so paranoid about, you know, having a Sanders presidency. And one of the biggest ones, of course, was the most disgusting and telling, which was that, oh, all the Democrat backers that are like paying for every candidate to be, you know, elected or go on a campaign were all terrified that he was going to hit their pocketbooks and flip to Trump because they threatened that directly. I was like, well, then there's a problem right there. But the bottom line is, I forgot where I was even going. Wait, where did we start off with this? <laughs> well, okay. Here's the thing. I'm going to vote for Bernie if it comes to Bernie and yeah. Biden. There's a big problem, you know, with Biden. Yes. What's the most obvious, number one? It's probably not going to be what you might think. To me, it's going to be every has everybody who's throwing their support behind him forgotten what led to the impeachment hearings. Yep. And don't forget, this is a guy that was never really taken seriously. I mean, even if you love Obama, which, okay, he was wishy-washy, he didn't get anything done, he bent over too far backwards, he was too conservative, fine. But forget all that. Even if you think he was the greatest president on earth, what the hell? This guy was, he was always the joke in the back. I mean, a lot of us liked him because he said what he felt, and he was kind of the the goofy guy. But that's he was the flavor flavor of the group. That's what he did. And nobody took him seriously. Picture this guy now. What is it, eight years on? He's, some people even mentioned, he looks like he's getting uh, senile dementia, or at least it's on the onset. And what's he going to do? Win it pissing his pants first between him and Trump? I mean, there's no way. The guy is as crazy as Trump is. He'll talk circles around them. Plus, he's got this big support base, tanking now, but somehow he managed to luck into what Obama had built up with a good stock market. Uh, mm. 
And, you know, he's the incumbent. There's a lot of advantages here. Just him being there, as crazy as he is, as Teflon as he's proved to be, with all the things that are against him that are obvious, like, how oh my God, could get me rid of this guy? To a contingent of America, it's like, yeah, he's doing great, so what? Must my uh, stock account's doing well. Mm-hmm. So uh, putting up somebody as weak as that, and as conservative as that, and as doddering as that, it wasn't even their strongest candidate. Okay, yeah, we got problems with him, but we could have put up Elizabeth Warren again. We could have even, if he wasn't so damn conservative, you know, Mayor Pete for the symbolic win. Oh, look, we elected a black man. We can elect a gay man now. Okay, great. So mm-hmm. what? But, you know, no, none of that's happened. We, they all threw back at the weakest candidate. He was actually at the bottom of the polls throughout this whole damn thing. I know. I know. And, and, and like Buttigieg, uh, if I'm saying his name correctly, um, I'm like, all right, go ahead. Go for it. You know? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Both Bernie and Joe Biden, when they get down to brass tactics, as they get close, mm-hmm. they better pick one of these bozos to be their vice president. I don't want to hear Ernie Schniskel from Opafernoki Swamp, like, like Hillary did with Kincaid. Yes. You know, you need you need that extra support there. Did to you boost hear you. Biden actually said at one point, maybe it was a joke, I don't know, oh, yeah, I'm open to having a Republican running mate? Seriously? I saw that, yeah. This guy is so conservative, you got to be freaking kidding me. That's but, not what we need. But if he chose Mitt Romney, <laughs> think well, about it. That's true, because he was it. the only one that stood up against Trump for all his other issues. <laughs> for for a lot of things, he stood up against Trump. I'm no Mitt Romney fan. No, no. Don't get me wrong. But when you look at that whole playing field, that's the one guy who stood out with the impeachment thing as well. Mm-hmm. So I give him a little bit of respect. If he did that, that would be strong against Trump. So he hinted at that. Maybe he's been talking to him. Maybe his camp's been talking to him. You never know. Or Warren. Or, or a, well, Buddha guy, he, he started out so strong, and then he kind of floundered. So I don't know. It's, he never really just, got enough of a following. Yeah. But, you know, we'll see. All right. So test this, and let's get going with Burt Reynolds. All right. Every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We'll try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. 
at eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seeds Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. 